evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. It is October 29th, 2023. I'm your host, Nate Pike, and uh, we got some, we're going to have some fun tonight. You know, it's been a little bit doom and gloomy lately, and so uh, we're going to, we're going to try to, 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 to uh, have a little fun with things. Um, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that we got coming up as well, because we've got a couple episodes that are going to be, uh, uh, they're going to be a little bit of a challenge for some folks, I suspect, but we're also, uh, going to be having a, a very, 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 very special guest next weekend. Um, we've been talking about it for a while. We've been talking about having a high-ranking individual from Take Back Alberta. It's happening next weekend. It's going to be good. But in the meantime and in between time, we got a lot that we have to cover this week before we open things up to our open mic. As always, if you're listening live because it is a live show, because that's the kind of show that we do here. If you're listening live, then uh, you can hop on the, the Twitter machine, the X machine, the X Twitter machine. Oh, see, now I don't know why it took me so long to put that together. Uh, and you can join us on Spaces. If you're listening to the podcast version or watching this later, you, you won't be able to do that. So, sorry. But getting right into things, because we do have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, that fascinating little story came out. Uh, from the, the Globe and Mail this week, published October 24th, written by the incomparable Emma Graney. And it talks about the fact that the International Energy Agency released a report where they said, hey, you know what? Everybody's been talking about peak oil. Everybody's trying to figure out the future of the, the new economy. What's, what are things going to look like? And uh, it's, it's coming, coming a lot quicker than a lot of people expected, apparently. Peak oil is supposed to be within this decade. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, got some implications for Alberta, but there's some context that needs to be kept in mind as well. So what the story talks about is um, the, the International Energy Agency said that it's, um, it's looking like the Clermont current climate policies that exist around the world are going to be reducing uh, the share of energy produced by fossil fuels to 73% from 80% by 2030. It also says that it expects energy-related carbon dioxide emissions to peak by 2025. Now, the report is careful to say that this doesn't mean that oil's going away. And everybody always tries to frame this conversation in sort of that, that binary state of there will be oil or there won't be oil. And sometimes the, the truth lies right in between. That's what uh, it's looking like with this, because what the report says is oil demand for petrochemicals, aviation and shipping will continue to increase through to 2050. But the report notes it won't be enough to offset reductions in demand from road transport and the power and building sectors. So a lot of the oil products that would normally go towards um, uh, things like putting gasoline in cars, well, we're not going to need as much of those because the electric cars are, are, are taken off at almost exponential rate. Um, power is going to be produced differently. We're going to talk about that later. And uh, so it's got, some, it's got some definite implications for uh, the Alberta economy. But one of the things that is important to, to emphasize is that when we're talking about oil and gas in Alberta, there's a bunch of different things that we've historically talked about. One of the things that we've talked about is, well, we get the oil out of the ground and then we move the oil to the places for the refining and then 
we burn it in a variety of different ways. Um, but there's other sections that have contributed to Alberta's economy, and there's other sections that have certainly contributed to how much money goes into Albertans' pockets. One of the big concerns that a lot of people have is the the jobs that existed in the early 90s, where somebody with a high school diploma, or not even, could buy themselves a welding truck, or go to work on the rigs, go to work on major projects, and make a hell of a living. And that's not to denigrate them because a lot of the work that they were doing was very important work. It was very dangerous work. It was backbreaking work. Certainly we're seeing a lot of the people who are struggling with the opioid epidemic right now are people who uh, were taking medications to manage pain from injuries that they sustained while they were building out all of this new oil and gas infrastructure. And that's likely one of the places where we're going to see Alberta really kind of feel it. Because the odds of new major oil and gas projects being built are just dropping every day. And as much as there are some people who might want to wish the global economic realities away, they're not going to go away. And one of the other things that uh, certainly has been highlighted by folks um, who have a much deeper knowledge of the subject is that one of the concerns that we have to watch with the Alberta economy is, well... The argument is Canada is only responsible for 2% of global emissions, and that's technically true. But if you take a look at it per capita, it's more closer to 16. And then when you take a look at what provinces are the big emitters, it's Alberta. And with global fund managers, with global investment groups saying, hey, unless somebody's working to get towards net zero right away, we're not, uh, we're not super interested in investing in those areas. We're not super interested in investing in those projects or those, those jurisdictions. And so not having a meaningful climate, uh, meaningful policy to address climate change and a meaningful policy to work towards net zero means that, among other things, we're not going to be able to bring in all of those investments. All of which is to say, it's very complicated. We're hoping to have some folks on who can maybe explain it a little bit better over the, the coming weeks. But uh, the world and the world economy is definitely changing and it's definitely something that we should all be paying attention to. Moving on from there, one of the big stories, ongoing drama. What's going on at Banff? All of these areas, the, the, the Banff Center, it's been having some problems. Uh, one of the big stories of the week had to do with the Banff Center. And basically what's been going on in the Banff Center is they've had uh, personnel issues for going on quite a while now. The story broke this week that because of an ongoing harassment complaint, that had been filed against uh, Adam Waterus, uh, who is a big Daniel Smith supporter and who also is the big advocate for the Calgary uh, Banff rail line because he's got some properties that he would definitely uh, directly see some benefit from if there was a Calgary to Banff train. Um, he's the, he's the, the board chair. Well... Uh, last year, then-CEO Janice Price filed a workplace harassment complaint against Adam Waterus, and the reason was that she wanted to have a say in recruiting her new director. And while the details haven't been released publicly, there was enough 
of a, a dumpster fire that went on that saw this uh, human resources workplace, workplace harassment complaint get launched. And it was determined after an independent investigation that the complaint had merit. And so the, the, a majority of the directors for the, for the board, the board of directors for the band center, said to the, the government, hey, um, you know what? Uh, if you could maybe remove Waterus from the board, that would be great because we've had these issues and the third party independent investigator has said, some problems here. Um, and uh, the, the government did, but they also got rid of the entire board, which is a, which is a, a, a pretty, pretty bold sort of uh, move when you've got a board in place, you've got institutional memory, all of those kinds of things. But it was determined that instead, no, no, you know what? We're just going to can everybody in Alberta Health Services style. We're going to get rid of the entire board and we're going to put in a single person to take responsibility. For, for the whole thing. Now, it's really important to note, this isn't the first time that the, the BAM Center has had these kinds of problems. There was a very, very high-profile situation in 2021 when former PCMLA Donna Kennedy Glantz was removed from the board, um, and this was ostensibly, it was never fully said, I don't know, I don't want to risk saying for sure one way or the other. But ostensibly what happened is she went on a radio show and she had uh, some criticisms, some observations, if you will, about then-Premier Jason Kenney and the way that he was handling some of the, the conflict that was going in, going on with his caucus at the time. Now, then-board chair Adam Waterus turfed her. He said that she had a failure to adhere to the Banff Center's code of ethics and inappropriate conduct, and so they 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 booted her. Now you might be wondering, okay, Adam Waterus gone, the entire board of directors also gone. Who's this person who's going to be running the show? Well, the UCP assigned Paul Bay two A's, one Y to review internal processes and policies at the Banff Center and take on the responsibilities of the Board of Governors until a new chair and board can be appointed. And you'd think that if you were going to send somebody in to run a center that had, obviously, some pretty major ethical questions going on, so, so certainly some behavioral questions going on, you would want to pick someone who is just absolutely above board, above reproach. Mr. Bay might have some problems making claims about that because just recently, just back in May, Mr. Bay got in trouble with the Alberta Securities Commission after he admitted to tipping, which is basically where he had some, uh, well, let's, let's, let's read it here, uh, for informing another person of material non-public information about Touchstone prior to general disclosure of this information to capital markets. Bay informed a registered uh, dealing representative of this information when it was not necessary in the course of business to do so. So it's like inside of that sort of same theme as, as the, the insider trading stuff. That's who the UCP said, hey, you know what, that's, that's who we should, and this was just in May. A couple months ago, the UCP said this is who we should get to run the Banff Center. So that's the thing that happened this week.
Moving on from there, one of the other things that we have to talk about this week is the COVID numbers, because there's been some scandal that has been ongoing in regards to the COVID numbers. Uh, now, obviously, COVID is a sensitive topic. There's a lot of people who get kind of squirrely because oh, we don't want to talk about the COVID. Well, CTV got a hold of an internal document. Now, we've been uh, sharing some numbers that have been shared with us from somebody who's very, very close to the COVID situation inside of the hospital system. And those numbers have been pretty bang on for pretty, I've been doing it for about three, four weeks now. And CTV got a hold of a document that's able to demonstrate that the numbers that are going up on the provincial dashboard are not consistent with the numbers that are going on with Alberta Health Services, allegedly, internally. And the numbers are not great. So the, the, the data from the provincial dashboard for COVID for just the week of October 15th to October 21st, 925 new cases. Uh, the positivity is 17.8%. There are 341 COVID patients in hospital. Uh, there are 14 COVID patients in the ICU and there have been 10 deaths in the last week. So those are, those are on their own. Those are some pretty numbers. But CTV has a document where they say, yeah, those numbers are actually, they're lowballing them. The, the numbers are low. And we can share tonight that based on the information that was forwarded to us from the, the person who's sharing these things from the inside, the numbers are actually significantly worse than what's been reported on that website. Uh, we've been forwarded information that on Wednesday, the number of COVID patients in the province of Alberta exceeded a thousand this is the first time this has happened in quite a while and to be clear the numbers that we're receiving are they're just from the dms we're quite confident in the numbers because they've been consistently accurate but the fact that covid continues to grow especially as we're added into the indoor season and the holiday season is definitely something that people should be considering so this is a uh, the breakdowns friendly neighborhood reminder to go ahead and get vaccinated it's no really good reason as long as your doctor says you're okay some people have reasons why they can't take the vaccines and that's okay too but if you're able to take uh the vaccine you should go get your covid vaccine there's our psa for the week moving on from there we're going to return to our uh it's been a little while since we got to throw this one out, but we're throwing this graphic up again tonight. We have a couple of special graphics tonight. Uh, this graphic tonight, uh, are you are you foiping kidding? Because we did, as, as anybody who listens to the show for a long time, we file FOIPs from time to time. Now, it's really important to highlight and to emphasize filing a FOIP is the, or a Freedom of Information Act request is a really, really easy thing to do. You go to the government's FOIP website, what's the thing that you want to know about, and then you, you pay $25, and then they get back to you, depending on a variety of factors, but they get back to you eventually, and they tell you the things that you want to know. So, tonight, we're going to talk about our little adventure in FOIP land, because it gets pretty wild pretty fast. So, a little while ago, the province launched... The Alberta Pension Plan website, albertapensionplan.ca. And then there's the website with a bunch of garbage information on it. But here's the thing 
that that one of our team wanted to wanted to know about. We got some creative people who work with us on the show, and one of the the more uh, creative, uh, inquisitive folks thought, "Hey, I wonder what the deal is with that with that website. I wonder how long the government's been sitting on that website." And so they did what's called a who is inquiry. You can do this on pretty much any uh, domain name provider. Um, but but he, this person did one on GoDaddy and it got really interesting really, really quickly because the creation date for albertapensionplan.ca, which means the last time on record that somebody registered the domain was in July, not of this year, but of 2013. And it had been sat on, it appears, up until... According to this, who is the government purchased it in September of 2023, which is pretty fascinating because what that means, and this is where we start to go down the rabbit hole a little bit. But what that means is this website had been around since 2013. Now, it turns out the website's actually been around for a whole lot longer, but we're going to get to that in just a sec because since the website was around for 2013, from 2013, sorry, that means that the government of Alberta had to procure, either they'd been sitting on the website in the, the government of Alberta uh, web owner's inventory for the better part of 10 years, which seems somewhat unlikely, or the government of Alberta had to buy it. And we were looking to see, hey, I wonder what, what, what other domain names are available. So we took a look at another domain name that the government of Alberta bought as well. So this was also purchased in September of 2023, but it was created at the same time. So what that means is the government of Alberta bought the web domain albertapension.ca as a brand new domain name. Now, why is this relevant? Because if you take a look at comparable domain names, if you want to go and just buy a domain name, let's say that you want to buy... Um, I don't know, the Breakdown AB sucks. Somebody's going to buy that now. But if you want to buy the Breakdown AB sucks, then you can go to domain providers and you can search up the domain that you want. And you can get them for really, really quite cheap. Just for fun, we threw in a couple of variations. So if we wanted to buy alberta-pension-plan.ca, we get about that for one cent for the first year of a three-year term, or we could have spent $15.99 uh, for uh, just the one year. But that's $15.99. Same thing with um, albertapensionpan.com. One cent, a little bit more, $30 if you want to buy it for just the one year. But what this suggests to us is that albertapension.ca, which is the brand new domain name, that was purchased by the Alberta government only cost them 15, 20 bucks, which is a reasonable amount for a domain because that's what the domains go for. But here's where things start to get really interesting because it turns out using the Wayback Machine that uh, the uh, albertapensionplan.ca history goes really far back. It goes back to 2007 and 2008, and that's when it was owned by an organization called the Alberta Residence League. 
And using the Wayback Machine, we're also able to take a look at, hey, who was on the board of the Alberta Residents League at the time of all of these things going on? And there's a bunch of names there. Now, there's some thing, There's an important thing that you need to know about the Alberta Residents League. That is the body that was created in order for the original authors of the firewall letter. So this is the letter that said, hey, Alberta should do all of these things to protect ourselves. That's who created and who initially registered albertapensionplan.ca. But when we're taking a look at the, a look at the list of the names, there was a couple that, uh, that jumped out. There were a couple that were really, really familiar. And we couldn't quite put our finger on why they were so familiar. So, of course, we relied on the Google machine. And it didn't take very long for us to figure out that the name that was bugging us the most was Alan Warnock. Alan Warnock is a lawyer who runs a practice out of Airdrie. And when we were scrolling through the bio, we quickly figured out why it was that the name Alan Warnock was so familiar. Because if you look at the dude on the far right, that's Derek Fromm. And Derek Fromm, of course, is one of the original authors of the Free Alberta Strategy with Rob Anderson. Rob Anderson now being uh, Danielle Smith's puppet mess, I mean, uh, executive director, office person. Rob Anderson worked at Alan Warnock's law firm before this all happened. So... Like I said, we're going down a bit of a, a, a bit of a rabbit hole here. But the, the long and the short of it is albertapensionplan.ca, which the government of Alberta bought because it was registered again in 2013. It appears that it was registered in 2013 shortly after the original owner of the domain uh, passed away. So the original owner of the domain, the original registrar of the domain, who was a member of the Alberta Residents League, uh, he passed away, and shortly after he passed away, somebody else, we don't know who, picked up the domain name and then sat on it for 10 years until the government of Alberta bought it. So this domain name has some legacy. It's got some history. And so we were curious, as we are, hey, what would happen if we FOIPed that? What would happen if we asked, hey, government of Alberta, how much did you pay for that uh, website address, and it didn't take very long, and we got a heavily redacted answer. Uh, you, if if you're listening on the Twitter, the X spaces, or to the podcast, you can't see how much of this page is is redacted. It's more redacted than words. But if we hop down to the section that includes the information that we went for, for the government of Alberta, who bought AlbertaPension.ca for presumably. 20, 25 bucks. They paid $1,900 to get the legacy, the, the OG domain name, albertapensionplan.ca. They paid $1,900 for that, which is a lot of money. For a lot of people, $1,900 right now is a mortgage. For a lot of people, $1,900 right now is rent and then some. It's food for their families. And you can't help but wonder, especially given that from those who is reports that we threw up earlier, it looks like albertapension.ca was actually bought before albertapensionplan.ca. 
you can't help but wonder why is it that the government of Alberta believed that wasting $2,000 to purchase a legacy domain name when they had a perfectly good one kicking around, what was the, what was the motivation? And perhaps one of the, the biggest questions that we don't have an answer to yet, we're going to be filing another FOIP later this week, though, is, uh, hey, who got paid? Because somebody got paid very, very well for sitting on this domain name for 10 years. Moving on from there, we're going to talk about Take Back Alberta Troubles. Oh, boy. Mr. Parker, he's got good reason to be angry this month. Um, there's a lot going on in Take Back Alberta land. Uh, and we're going to talk about, about some of those things. There's, there's Mr. Parker. Um, so, again, we've got a very exciting interview coming up next weekend. We're very excited for it. It's going to be a gooder, high-ranking TBA member. But TBA was back in the news again when Press Progress did a story where they got a, a bit of an exclusive interview with Mr. Parker where he updated everybody what was, what was going on with Take Back Alberta from the story. We're decommissioning the society because we're creating a federal not-for-profit so that we can have branches of Take Back Alberta all over the country. Parker told Press Progress, we've had a lot of interest in B.C., Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. We're incorporating the new not-for-profit, and there's a board of five people on that. And then we have our normal system of ten captains, two for each region. Presumably, some of them will be black belts, and others will be yellow belts and blue belts and white belts. That's a reference to Take Back Alberta's early days. Uh, according to public records, Take Back Alberta incorporated itself as a federal nonprofit on September 10th, 2023. Parker is currently listed as its only director. So good to have aspirations, I guess. But this is where the article took a bit of a turn because Parker then went after some of the key people that he utilized to get Take Back Alberta where it is today. And this is where I get to say the name because I love saying the name. We're going to talk about, talk quite a bit about None other than Marco Van Hugenboos. This never gets old. Uh, Parker says Hugenboos was eventually asked to leave the group for later attacking Chris Kinnear on Twitter, a staffer in Premier, uh, Smith's Premier's office who works as director of special projects. There was a whole problem with Marco going rogue, Parker told Press Progress. If you're staring down jail like he is, it's going to mess with your head. You're a cornered animal. They did directly break the law so i think he's up against that and i think it really affected him and then he started attacking chris kinnear parker said you can't block borders right there's a big difference between what happened in ottawa and what happened in coots but it turns out that marco van hoogen is not the only person that uh, mr mr parker decided to target also canceled from the story again also canceled is benita peterson who like parker has been active in anti-lgbtq plus actions throughout the summer i've asked benita to move on parker said like a lot of people in the freedom movement she doesn't believe in destruction or order and we can't have people randomly going out and talking for take back alberta as if they're speaking for the organization marco did the same thing parker said but that's just the beginning. Because Marco Van Hugenboos also had some, uh, some, some words of his own that he, he wanted to share. Uh, he released a couple of, of different statements that we were sent, uh, ap apparently from the, the, the Take Back Alberta Telegram channel, which 
uh, in a fascinating twist, Marco appears to be the owner of, we're told, or he's the administrator of. So I guess they're going to need a, a new channel or something now that Marco's been turfed and David's running the show all by himself. Sees. But from the, uh, from the statement, um, got, some, got some strong words. The Press Progress article was a hit piece against organizers previously involved in TBA. These organizers gave hundreds of hours to TBA for no gain other than the benefit of the province. I mean, that's probably open to some debate. But... On their own dollar and time, they traverse this province to host meetings and perform other TBA business. FYI, David has always been reimbursed for his works and travels. It goes on to say his unhinged behavior and unstable communication style of late will further divide a party that needs to come together. He's a liability both to himself and take back Alberta. But that was just the start because he then released a two and a half page a statement where he talked about all of the, the concerns that he had. He said, let the record state that I've never publicly mentioned Chris Kinnear, exclamation mark. He says that the organization stabilized due to the efforts of captains and many others. The behavior of DP, presumably David Parker, started to change. He went back to singular decision-making, his communication style and rhetoric changed, and he started to incur debt again only making me aware of expenses after the fact. He then goes on to talk about David Parker's involvement in nominations. Rut row. Gets pretty, gets pretty, pretty spicy stuff. It's up on our, up on our, our X. You can go find that. It's up on our, up on our X for anybody to read. Um, I presume it's going to be in lots of other places in short order. But there's one particular piece of this response to David Parker that gets really interesting really quick. We're going to take a quick look at that. During the first week of the writ. So this was presumably... Mr. Uh, Mr. Van Hoogenbos is alleging that uh, uh, after the first week of the election, so the writ's been dropped, the election started, we're having election 2023 in the province of Alberta. During the first week of the writ, while members of the war room, party staff, government staff, premier's office staff, so when they're talking about the war room there, presumably they're not talking about the Canadian Energy Centre, they're talking about the political war room, continue to attack candidates that I was associated with. David alleged... He got a call from the premier. Please ask Marco to step back from all campaigns. My response was, okay, please ask the premier to call me herself. She has my number. Am I that scary? David's response was, Marco, you know she can't talk to you, right? I agree that she shouldn't be talking to me. I mean, he does have a pending court case for the blockade situation. So it appears maybe Danny's learned a little bit. Um, and I also believe, uh, she wasn't talking to DP. The fact that David felt he could talk to her presents a mindset of being above the law. So when he says, I couldn't believe that she was talking to DP, presumably that means I couldn't believe she was talking to David Parker. Now, why is that a big deal? You might ask, fortunately, your friendly neighborhood breakdown podcast, uh, is, is here to speculate. So here's the thing. David Parker 
is saying to, ostensibly, DP, assuming that DP is David Parker. For the hypothetical exploration of this paragraph, let's pretend that DP is David Parker. Presumably, David Parker is saying that he got a phone call from Danielle Smith asking David to make operational choices about how TBA behaved during the first week of the writ. Now, there's plenty of other places in this uh, um, statement, I guess, uh, manifesto, if you will, the from Mr. Van Hoogenbos, who, where he's alleging that David Parker is directly taking orders from Danielle Smith. Now, why does that get to be especially complicated? Well, like I said earlier, it appears that maybe Danny learned something. You shouldn't be talking to people who are facing criminal charges uh, and asking them to do things for you. Uh, cough, Arthur, cough. Um, but there's maybe a little bit more to it. Because if we take a look at when Take Back Alberta was registered as a third-party advertiser. It was February 2nd, 2022. And as of this broadcast, we just pulled this screenshot up like an hour, an hour and a half ago. It's a Sunday. We feel pretty safe saying this. As of this broadcast, Take Back Alberta has not apparently been deregistered as a third-party advertiser. If the statement from Marco Van Hoogenbos is accurate... If it's true, we don't know. It's just a statement from, oh, right, uh, a, a town councillor. Um, if, if that statement, who's, who's facing criminal charges, one would think that, that, that he wouldn't want to, to be um, making stuff up and, and, and alleging criminal action when he's got his own criminal um, trial pending. One would think that. One might be wrong, but uh, you'd think that if he was going to throw these allegations around, he'd, he'd probably somewhere have some receipts for them. But where this gets to be a really big deal is, according to Marco, town councillor, David Parker was taking direct orders from Daniel Smith about how Take Back Alberta should operate. Take Back Alberta was registered as a third-party advertiser during the election. There's got to be a word for that. I don't know what the word is. Interference. I don't know. Collusion. I don't know. That's probably up for someone with a, a law degree or an office at Elections Alberta to figure out, maybe. I don't know. But the allegations that David Parker has been taking instruction from Daniel Smith... Instead of the other way around, which is what most people have been speculating, is pretty wild. The allegations that David Parker has been using Take Back Alberta as some sort of a, a vehicle for Smith to influence things outside of the political sphere is a, is a, it's a pretty spicy little meatball, Mr. Van Hoogenboss has, uh, has thrown down. But it's worth remembering all of this is coming from the, the, the sunny little town of Fort McLeod. And while I don't want to cast dispersions on the entire town, it is worth remembering that Fort McLeod is the same, um, the same little place that, uh, that, that gave us the, the mayor 
of, of Fort McLeod speculating that uh, burnt trees were in fact the the sign that Hawaii didn't have a, a wildfire. No, no, it was not a wildfire. The, the only possible explanation uh, was that it was space lasers. Yeah, yeah, it was space lasers. And uh, the, his speculation was that it was not just space lasers. So this wasn't just, uh, <laughs> I, I, I told myself I was going to get all the way through this without laughing, and I just never can. It wasn't just space lasers. It was a terrorist attack. Maybe. So there's some pretty serious people in the town of Fort McLeod. Sorry, Fort McLeod. I don't know what to tell you. Um, I, I guess maybe vote a little differently. Moving on from there, though. We're going to get into a little bit of kind of our, our main event before we get to our second main event. We, we uh, ostensibly have two main events tonight. So we're going to talk a whole lot about the situation with the, the pension program, the upcoming legislative assembly agenda, because that kind of dovetails into it. And then we're bringing back for two weeks in a row. We've even got a graphic this time. We're working on a video for next week uh, of Stuff Danny Says. So, or Stuff Smith Says. I'd have to double check what was on the graphic. But we got a bunch of that coming up. So, getting right into the pension. The Ontario Minister of Finance issued a letter where he made it very, very clear that he's another heavy hitter in Canada who's saying, hey, you know what? Uh, this pension plan of yours, I'm not a really big fan of it. Uh, it was very carefully worded. I have the greatest respect for Alberta, the province, its people and economy play an incredibly important role in Canada's success. And particularly our government has been proud to stand in support of Alberta's energy sector and will continue to do so. While we will always maintain our respect for Alberta, our government firmly supports the CPP and shares your serious concerns because this was written to the Honorable Christian Freeland. So we have a conservative finance minister saying, hey, Christian, uh, I'm 100% with you on this. Shares your serious concerns with Alberta's proposal to withdraw from it. The CPP's greatest strength is its pan-Canadian approach that provides stability for workers and their families so Canadians can be sure to have a reliable retirement plan no matter where they live, work, or choose to retire. At a time when economic challenges are putting pressure on household budgets, the people of Ontario and Canada should not have to worry about the security of their retirement savings or the possibility of costly increases to contributions. He then goes on to ask for a minister's meeting to, uh, to, to get this whole thing sorted out. There's nobody except for the people who are directly tied to the, the Danielle Smith campaign, who is coming to the table with any sort of administrative background or financial background or economics experience, who has said, no, this sounds like a great idea. Go for it. There's a couple people who have written some columns, and we're going to talk about them in just a sec. But uh, there's a bunch of people who have said, hey, nah. One of them is none other than a uh, renowned economist and constitutional law scholar. Andrew Leach. He tweeted out earlier in the week on the 25th, the Fraser Institute in advocating for an Alberta pension plan could only stomach analysis based on Alberta getting 16.4%, which is, and I've checked with people who do math, less than 53% of the CPPIB accumulated assets. Let's not pretend the LifeWorks number is the only number out there. Okay. Now we took a look 
at that report, that Frazier report bulletin that went through how Albertans are treated so unfairly uh, with the CPP. It used the CPP as a, as a case study. And there's one particular section that we really wanted to highlight because it kind of cuts right through the, despite the fact that it goes on to make other, I would argue, stupid arguments. Um, it cuts right to how is it that Danielle Smith and the UCP and the people who are advocating for an Alberta uh, pension plan, how is it that they can say that Alberta is overpaying? And the long and the short of it is they're manipulating the words and the reality. But let's not take it from the Hack podcast host. Let's take it from the Fraser Institute. What do they say? In 2017, Alberta workers represented 16.5% of the total contributions to the CPP, while Alberta retirees consumed 10.6% of CPP expenditures. This resulted in a net contribution by Albertans to the CPP in 2017 of $2.9 billion. Over the last decade, 2008 to 2017, Alberta's made a cumulative net contribution of $27.9 billion to the CPP. Alberta's disproportionate contributions to the CPP and other national programs happen largely because the province has a disproportionate share of the country's working age population, higher employment rate for people of working age, and higher average earnings than the rest of the country. So let's be clear. The entire argument that Alberta overpays isn't based on anything other than the fact there are more young people who are paying for their own pension. It's not Alberta's. There are more young people who are paying for their own pension with the CPP than there are in other provinces. There are fewer old people in Alberta who are collecting CPP benefits than there are in other provinces, mostly because they make a lot of money when they're younger and they get to retire somewhere else. But that's it. That's the whole thing. The whole argument is predicated on the fact that there are more younger people who are contributing to their own CPP fund, saving for their own retirement, which they'll get, than there are in other provinces. That's it. That's how Alberta is overpaying. We have more people who are eligible to pay in than we have who are eligible to withdraw. But it doesn't change the fact that each one of those people is paying into their own pension plan that's individual to them. It's not a provincial thing. These are individuals paying into their individual pension plan. Now, the money does get pooled and turned into investment so that there's the, the fund can grow, but it doesn't change the fact that all of those young people who are disproportionately paying into the pension plan right now are going to presumably age, and when they do, they'll get their own pension returns. And this is one of the fundamental flaws of the Alberta Pension Plan, because if it doesn't stay that way, if younger people don't continue to stay in Alberta at a disproportionate rate to the older people who are taken off to presumably warmer, I don't know, less bigoted places. Um, if that ratio changes in any way, Alberta has a really big problem. 
This is something that's been highlighted by economists who actually know these things. This isn't my opinion. This is the math that's been done by people like Andrew Leach, by people like Trevor Toome. These are the risks that Alberta would be assuming if Alberta did take on a pension plan. But speaking of the Fraser Institute... You know, one of the lines that we keep hearing about the Alberta Pension Plan is the LifeWorks report, not LifeMark. That'll get funnier as we go through the show. The LifeWorks report, uh, you know, that was originally commissioned by Morneau Chappelle. And that that's like Bill Morneau's company. So, you know, that's that's not a, a super super conservative organization. It's not like they have like super conservative people on the on the board and you certainly wouldn't find any of them if you check the bio session of the the fraser institute like oh jack jack mintz jack mintz is is somebody who is on the board uh or or works with the fraser institute and if we read the 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 fine print of his bio there it makes it very very clear he also serves now this is an older bio so do with that what you will uh he also serves on the boards of imperial oil limited and drumroll please Morneau Chappelle. Now it's worth noting as much as folks like Danielle Smith and David Parker like to say, ah, Morneau Chappelle, that's Bill Morneau's company. Uh, Bill Morneau was elected in, in 2015 and he stopped being the CEO of that company. So nope, because this report was commissioned after the UCP were elected in 2019. So if we're going to cast aspersions as to whether or not the report is biased or not biased because, ah, it's Bill Morneau's company, ah, but Jack Mintz is involved with it. It's not like, you know, if it was, if, if, if Jack Mintz had written, I don't know, multiple columns or anything where he talked about the value of an Alberta pension, oh, wait, oh, dear, here we go. And these are both since the debate started on October 6th. 2023, Jack Mintz, Alberta, taking half of CPP assets is a reasonable place to start. September 20th, 2025, Jack Mintz, or sorry, 2023, it's the eyesight. Uh, Jack Mintz, an Alberta pension plan, would be entitled to half of CPP assets. So clearly, Jack Mintz, who according to the Fraser Institute was on the board for Renault Chappelle, has some very strong feelings about an Alberta pension. But what, what, what about when it comes to other provinces? Have you ever expressed some, some uh, oh, 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 he has expressed some opinions about the other, other provinces. When Ontario was uh, talking about a pension plan, what was Jack Mintz's response? We don't need a big fat pension plan in Ontario. When it comes to retirement, most people's main concern will be, will I have enough money? Economist Jack Miss, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, says many Canadians are doing well in terms of saving towards their retirement goals. He told BNN's Greg Bonnell that Ontario's new retirement pension plan is harebrained. And this is why. I don't think the current approach in Ontario is the right one, said Mintz in an interview on BNN. We don't need a big, fat pension plan in Ontario in order to force many people into savings that they don't really need to have. So when it comes to should there be a, a pension plan in Ontario, ah, no, people are doing fine. They don't need to save any money. Uh, they're saving everything they need right now. And when it comes to Alberta, 
Alberta walking with half of the CPP assets makes perfect sense. So if we're going to talk about who's involved with Morneau Chappelle, I'm just saying, maybe we should talk about who's been involved with Morneau Chappelle. Moving on from there, but staying on the pension topic, we got to talk about uh, the what's the pension number? This has been a nutty week. Like, it truly has been a remarkable week in regards to the government comms not being able to get the the message clear uh, at all. So, on October 25th, just a couple days ago, there's a paper released where there has to be a hard number. Smith says no pension referendum without firm estimate of Alberta's cut of CPP assets. Smith on the hard number. What I've gathered so far and the feedback that we've got is they want us to figure out what the actual transfer dollar amount would be. I'm going to read that again because there's some implications. What I've gathered so far and the feedback we've got is they want us to figure out what the actual transfer dollar amount would be, she said, adding we have a little more work to do there. That seems to be Danielle Smith making a tacit admission that, hey, you know what, we don't actually know how much money um, how much money anybody would be getting from the from the pension plan where we got some we got some things we still gotta figure out. Smith went on to say, I'm not going to go to a referendum if people don't have the information they need in order to make a decision. Now, the follow-up question to a statement like that, any reasonable person would conclude, would simply be, if Smith knows, and she seems to have admitted, the number, it's not the actual number, the 53%, the, the half the pension plan and change, uh, that's not the actual number. That's what Smith seems to be admitting in that statement. So if she knows that Albertans don't have the information that they need to make any sort of informed decision about whether or not they want to leave the CPP and assume all of the extra risks or whether they want to stay with the CPP and enjoy the advantages and still some of the risks that exist less so than with an Alberta pension plan, uh, they don't have that, that information. So why is she continuing to spend Eight million dollars on this advertising campaign. Eight million dollars of taxpayers' money. If she's acknowledging in that statement that came out on the the 25th that Albertans don't have the information that they need, why is she continuing to waste eight million dollars of taxpayers' money during a financial uh, instability? crisis for many people during a housing crisis for many people during a food uh, security crisis for many people why is she spending eight million dollars on this advertising campaign when we don't even have the real information well the next day she got asked that question now to the bidding panel and the ad campaign that you have with certain numbers touting the numbers that are, are no longer the numbers that we're hearing. Like, there's there's no change in the numbers. Well, you said yesterday that you would look at uh, refining the numbers. Before no, no, it no. Went no. What I've what I've said is we've done our interpretation. Um, we know what the act says. 
We've asked the federal government to give us their interpretation. They've declined. We've asked the CPP Investment Board to give us their interpretation. They've declined. So maybe the next step is to go to court to see if the court supports our interpretation. But I, I think we need to have that that number figured out. And I, I, whether it's whether the federal government comes to the table, the CPP Investment Board does, or the court does, we will have a firm number before we go into a referendum. Okay, so you're standing by your ad campaign, then putting out these numbers for that's now. What, that's what we're entitled to. Okay. If you look at the at the legislation. The legislation says that a province should be made whole from when they entered the plan. We have overpaid $60 billion. That money has compounded over time. We're entitled to 53%, which is $334 billion. So if they have a different calculation or a different interpretation, we'd love to hear that. And it's up to them to come back to us with that. Thank you. We are still waiting for them to see what uh, what they think is wrong with our interpretation of the act. They have not responded to us. But are you willing to move off your numbers? I'm, I'm waiting to see if they're going to respond to us. And if they, they don't, we'll have to go to court to get a court to tell us what the number is because Albertans want to know what the number would be and there's an important reason for that because the amount of the asset tra transfer will then determine how much we can reduce premiums or it will determine how much we can increase benefits. People need to know that before they vote. I mean, I, I every time I watch that, I'm just speechless. There's so much to unpack. So the day before... Smith had said, hey, you know what? We need to find out the actual number because Albertans deserve to know what the actual number is. And then in the space of just a couple of minutes, when asked, hey, what about this advertising campaign? She turns around and says, oh, um, the numbers are the numbers. They're accurate. That's what we're entitled to. And then from there turns around and says, well, you know, we got we to gotta get this figured out. Albertans deserve to know what the actual number is. If we have to go to court to determine if our assessment is correct, we'll do that. But uh, Albertans absolutely deserve to know what the, what the final number is actually going to be. So which one is it? Because there's so many to choose from. Is Smith saying the numbers are accurate and reliable and that's what Albertans should be making their decision on or is she saying the numbers uh, Albertans deserve to know what the final numbers are actually going to be and if we have to go to court to figure that out we will like it's just ludicrous and she keeps saying that she wants the CPPIB or the um, the federal government to come with their interpretation of how much Alberta should be deserving and she keeps reiterating that nobody else has come to the table with any sort of assessment and that's just Patently not true. The people that she's looking to make enemies of haven't come to the table with an assessment yet. But as we've said before, as we had him on the show, Dr. Trevor Toome, he's done a very thorough assessment. He's a renowned economist known for not being terribly biased. Andrew Leach has taken a look at the question as well. The Fraser Institute which is, for anybody who's unfamiliar, a fairly conservative little think tank. They came up with 16%. There's no shortage of people who are saying that the 53% number that Daniel Smith keeps throwing out and keeps demanding is the, the real number. That's what Albertans are entitled to because we've overpaid. We've already talked about that. That's... There's... Which position is it? And that's the fascinating thing, is that at the same time that Danielle Smith is making a pitch to Albertans that we should trust her, 
with a pension plan, she can't even seem to choose a lane as to which position she's going to be in. But you might be wondering, where was that press conference at? Well, that was at the, the, the Pembina little conference that they had. And if you've been living under a rock, you may have somehow missed this next clip that we're about to play. If you're listening to this show, though, odds are you've already heard it, but we're going to play it because there's some added context, as there always is, that we need to add in after we play the clip. But Daniel Smith also did a, a fireside chat that uh, got a little out of control. Does anyone think that would be possible to get that built in 12 years starting now? I mean, you talk to you go ahead. You go ahead and talk to Jonathan Wilkinson then, because I can tell you, I can tell you, Site C began in 1954. Site C began in 1954. Fine. Do you think I can get? Do you think well, yeah. I can get uh, a, an equivalent amount of nuclear rolled out in 12 years? Do you think I could do that in a, in an environment that we've never had well, nuclear how, before? I I don't want to interrupt the two of you. But do you do you? Th- I, but what what, what do I, you I know, know? And I, I get and I. What do you know that my industry experts don't know about about? Yeah. Well, let's, you know, and what do I do when there's no sun and there's no wind? Batteries. Let's talk about batteries Danielle, because I've talked to somebody. I want to I want to talk about batteries for a minute because I know that everybody thinks that this economy is going to be operated on wind and solar and battery power, and it cannot. There is no industrialized economy in the world operating that way because they need. Load. And I'll tell you what I know about batteries because I talked to somebody who was thinking of investing in it on a 200 megawatt plant. One million dollars to be able to get each megawatt stored. That's 200 million dollars for his plant alone and he would get one hour of storage. So if you want me to have 12,000 megawatts of storage, that's $12 billion for one hour of storage, $24 billion for two hours of storage, $36 billion for three hours of storage. And there are long stretches in winter where we can go weeks without wind or solar. That is the reason why we need legitimate, real solutions that rely on baseload power rather than fantasy thinking. And I am not going to engage in fantasy thinking and say something is possible when I know that my principal job... I I think we need to stop. My principal job is to have a reliable energy grid. That's what I'm trying to do. I I think I understand... uh, And that got interesting, didn't it? Um, So, with that clip... um, Again, so much to unpack, as always, with Danny. And we haven't even gotten to what's, uh, what Smith says, our, our, our new, new, new weekly segment, uh, what Smith said. Um, it's fascinating that somebody who claims that they're interested in listening and somebody who's interested in, in consultation has the opportunity to have some conversations with people in the room who are there because they are concerned about climate change. They're concerned about the effect of climate change. They're concerned about the economic impacts of climate policy. They're concerned about all of these things. These are people, you don't just walk off the street into a, a, a Pembina conference. That's not a thing that happens. So these are people who are very, very engaged. And rather than have a conversation, Danny wanted to show how well she's learned her talking points and shout down somebody who was trying to bring a different perspective. Now, she went on to talk about, oh, you know, these large scale, we'd have to have all of these, uh, these massive, massive, massive 
battery complexes built. And that's not what the gentleman in the question was talking about. There was a follow-up news report shortly after that where it made it very, very clear. Uh, a quote from the story, Powers also said the premier had misunderstood what he meant when he shouted about batteries. He wasn't talking about industrial scale battery storage on the province's power grid, but rather small scale battery storage individual homes, which makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you have people that are putting solar up on their roofs, as more and more people are, if they are able to tie in some kind of a storage system, it doesn't have to be one megawatt. It doesn't have to be that. It can be enough to keep them running for six hours, 12 hours, however long. There's some amazing battery options that are that are out there. And that's what this individual was talking about. But rather than take the time to try to listen to him, Danny wanted to show just how well she knew her talking points and how well she'd memorized the things that she'd been told and instead shout this gentleman down rather than engage in a productive conversation. Moving on from there, we got to talk about the, uh, the, the legislative session that's coming up right quick here. Because there's a lot that's going to be going on. We had uh, House Leader uh, Joseph Shao. He came out and he talked about the, the legislative session. He got a couple questions about the, the pension situation. And his answers were a little bit... Maybe a little bit revealing. Will this be a piece of legislation that will be introduced to say that, or our emotion? What will actually be done in a very concrete way towards an Alberta pension plan in the session? So exactly what I just said. So any any move towards an Alberta pension plan could not be done without the approval of the uh, of Alberta citizens via referendum. So it's really enshrining a legislation, our intent uh, to put this question to Albertans. Said the quiet part out loud there. It's really enshrining in legislation our intent to put this question to Albertans. Now, there's some folks who have been speculating it's not actually going to come to a referendum, is it? Yeah, it's really kind of looking like it is. Not only have we had Smith make several slip-ups in regards to the the referendum, we've had Jim Dinning make several slip-ups in the town halls that have been held already where they've talked about the fact that there's going to be a referendum. And here we have Joseph Shao saying our intent to do a referendum. But that's not all he had to say about the pension question. On pensions again, the Premier said she wants a hard number uh, before putting this to a referendum, even if that might mean a court battle. It could be a long way down the road. Why is it important to bring that legislation forward? I think it's important to make it very clear to Albertans that should we move forward with a pension, it's going to be with their with their uh, support via referendum. So putting legislation just strengthens our, our, our case that we do want to hear from Albertans. We are currently consulting Albertans on this and making sure they have all the relative information. It's their pension uh, and they're going to have a, have a strong say in that. Or they're, they're going to have the say in that. But it's important to have all the information uh, so when they make a decision, it's fully informed. There's three or four bills we've heard coming forward next week. Might this be one of them? It is, yes. So again, we're back to which one is it? Do we have the hard numbers or not? We still don't know definitively what the numbers are going to be for this little pet project. And it seems like everybody who's involved with the conversation on the pro side kind of sort of knows that already. They just 
don't want to fully acknowledge the fact that the LifeWorks report appears to let's go with have some flaws. But that's not the only thing that came up in the, the, the briefing. It was a very short little press conference, but it's not the only thing that came up in the briefing that Albertans probably want to pay particularly close attention to. There was a little bit of a good news, bad news situation in regards to the forced treatment that Danielle Smith campaigned on. Confirm if your party's moving forward with the proposed Compassionate Intervention Act, and if not, why this fall? So this fall, no. Uh, we are moving forward with the... Uh with the Opioid Cost Recovery Act because we do feel strongly that uh, Albertans stuck in the cycle of addiction uh, you know, deserve, deserve support and any compensation to that would be going to supporting Albertans um, stuck in the cycle of addiction. But with regards to the compassion intervention, uh, there's no legislation this fall for that, but uh, it's a very uh, important uh, piece of our government's, uh, the Alberta model going forward. So when we're talking about the the compassionate intervention, as 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 they're gently phrasing it, what they're talking about is somebody, a, a panel in some cases, and obviously we don't know the, the ins and outs and the specifics, but what they're talking about is the ability for the government to say to someone, hey, you know what? Uh, we don't like you using those drugs. And so what we're going to do is we're going to forcibly take you against your will to a treatment center where we're just going to treat you so hard. There's just going to be so much treatment that you are somehow going to decide, yes, you you are interested in doing all of the work. Now, we've had conversations with folks over the last year because this has been an ongoing topic that keeps coming up. But we've had some conversations with folks who know about addictions. They have not only lived experience with opioid addiction and other forms of addiction, but they also have lived experience with treatment and effective treatment. And universally, every single one of them has said forced treatment won't work. Period. End of sentence. And in fact, when you take a look at what the outcomes are in areas where forced treatment is an option, they're worse. Now, this also comes at a time where we are literally less than a week away from the UCP AGM, where they're going to be voting on a policy to defund supervised consumption sites, which do work. Not only do supervised consumption sites keep people alive, but they also have some really positive impacts. They have a net negative effect on the number of needles that are in the community, which is to say there are fewer needles in the community because of supervised consumption sites than there are without those supervised consumption sites. Not only that, and perhaps most importantly, supervised consumption sites actually have a really high rate of diversion and getting people into treatments and they have very good success rates for those people who are diverted, who go into treatment because of the relationships that are built with the folks who are working in the supervised consumption sites. So the UCP is currently pursuing a policy to ensure that if they believe somebody is using too much drugs, I guess, they should be forced into treatment while at the same time 
they're voting on a policy to remove funding for pathways that actually work, pathways that actually get people help, that build relationships, that meet people where they are, that do all of the things that is evidence-based when it comes to helping someone navigate substance use. Moving on from there. And this was, this was a little gift, I, I think, to everybody this morning. It was just one of those like warm, happy little moments where it's like, Oh, they didn't just say that, did they? But they sure did. Nate Horner appeared on uh, CTV this morning. And he talked about what the threshold was going to be for the the referendum when he was asked by uh, Vashi Capellos some questions about what the metrics were going to look like. Will you know you have enough support? Is 51% enough support? Is there any number attached to it? Is it just going to be Mr. Jennings say, I, th I think enough people want you to look at this, so we'll have a referendum? Like, how are you going to make that call? Well, I, I don't know if we have, uh, you know, a precise, uh, a precise number, but I think we're, we're, sure, we're sure thinking that we'll have a, a feeling of the province. You know, this, this is, there's nothing more emotional than someone's, someone's pension. We're well aware so this is this is truly to to get their feedback, um, and you know I think we'll feel that no one would want to push forward into a an unsuccessful referendum. Uh, so I think the premier's been clear that um, in the last in the last few days her statement's been you know we would never even consider having a referendum without a precise number. I, I take that point, and I'll ask you about the number in a second. But, but, and I ask this with great respect. But the idea of leaving the CPP would have massive ramifications potentially for Alberta and the rest of the country. And you're going to base that on a feeling? Well, I think it'll be more than a feeling. I begin dreaming. Got to be a little bit more more than a feeling, but uh, that's uh, there's there's no there's no benchmarks there's no targets we haven't figured that out we're spending eight million dollars of taxpayers' money on this advertising campaign on this uh, um, consent manufacturing program, um, but we don't have any benchmarks to determine whether or not we'll we'll go to referendum. We don't have any empirical evidence as to whether or not we'll go on, on referendum. It's absolutely wild that this is how the government of Alberta is choosing to spend Albertans' money and engage with Albertans right now. It's just, it's, it's absolutely wild. Moving on from there, got a couple more topics we're going to talk about. Really just one. Um... And then we're getting into our Stuff Smith Says segment. You don't want to miss that. We're going to talk again about the, the Tylenaut situation in the province of Alberta. Some of you might remember. We've been talking about it for a while. We've had Zayad Fazel on a few times to talk about what he's been able to unearth about the, the, the dumpster fire of the, um, the, the Tylenaut. Back in December, Danielle Smith decided she was going to make some waves, uh, calamity, uh, by spending upwards of $100 million on taxpayers' money to get a company that didn't actually make the product that was uh, being sought to make 
children's acetaminophen, which is the the chemical name or the the generic name for Tylenol, uh, as well as children's ibuprofen, because there was in September, October, November, uh, a shortage of children's pain and fever uh, medication. Now, it's important to highlight here, hospitals had not expressed that they were experiencing any kind of a shortage. This was a consumer shortage more than anything else. That being said, Daniel Smith made the announcement that she was going to spend $80 million to get Atabay Pharmaceuticals, which is a company that makes the precursor. So, and we've talked about this on the show before. The idea is it's like going to a, a car parts company and ordering a Miata. They could probably put one together given enough time because they've got all the parts, but it's going to take a while because they don't generally sell Miatas. Atabay didn't sell children's um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen in the formulation that the province of Alberta needed in order to get it into the, the country. That's just what it was. But Daniel Smith said, you know what? It's not a problem. We're going we're gonna to make this work. And she also made a couple other promises at the time because they had to do a minimum order. And it was uh, a lot. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was 4 million bottles, um, which is a lot of bottles. And so she said, you know what? It's cool, though. Some of you might be thinking, oh, what are we going to do with 4 million bottles of, of Tylenol? Um, it's cool. All of the other provinces are going to want it. It's going to be the best stuff ever. This is, this is like Teletubbies, man. People are going to just eat it up. And then none of the provinces did. Well, some more details came out. Only uh, 30% of the 5 million units of medication paid for by the province was ever shipped to Alberta, and even less has actually been used. Reading from the story on the screen now, the first shipment of 250,000 bottles of acetaminophen authorized by Health Canada for hospital use only. That's important. It's really important because the first quarter of a million bottles that were shipped to the country were shipped only for hospital use. Now, again, the shortage that most people were experiencing wasn't in the hospitals. It was with all of the product that they were trying to buy at the pharmacy. It arrived six weeks after Ms. Smith's announcement on the deal on December 6, 2022. Six weeks after December 6, 2022. That gets to be important in just a second. Alberta Health Services spokesperson Carrie Williamson said only 9,000 of those 9,000 of those 250,000 were ever distributed to hospital pharmacies before AHS in July, May, June, July. Okay ordered its staff to stop using the weaker strength product because of the domestic uh, supply had stabilized. Mr. Williamson said in his statement that $70 million was paid up front without having the product. We paid $70 million in one shot up front to Atabay for... Pro for product, and approximately $4 million has been spent on freight and distribution costs. Government officials estimated in March that the deal would cost Alberta taxpayers a total of $80 million. Health Canada says now it would not consider applications from Alberta to bring in the remaining 3.5 million bottles of foreign medication unless a crit critical shortage reoccurs. 
So let's just be clear. We've gotten 250,000 for hospital use only, of which only 9,000 were used. We've gotten another 250,000 that was for consumer use. So you could go to your pharmacy and you could buy it. We paid $70 million up front. And we don't have a pathway to getting in the other three and a half million bottles that Albertans paid for unless another crisis occurs. And the reason why Health Canada is saying that is because there were continual problems with the product. First, the labels were wrong. The bottles were glass. The labels weren't bilingual. There were all sorts of problems with this product to say nothing of the fact that the dosing of the product is different than every other formulation you can get in Canada for kids, ibuprofen or acetaminophen. We can't even get it, get into the country, the three and a half million bottles that we paid for up front. And this is from the government that is now asking Albertans, hey, how would you feel if we were we took all of the money that you've been paying in to the Canada pension plan and we brought it back to Alberta, added a bunch of extra risks, and then you just trust us to manage it responsibly? Danielle Smith spent $70,000 of taxpayers' money up front on a vanity project that wasn't even necessary. And how do we know it was not even necessary? Because at the beginning of January, on January 18th, roughly a month after Danielle Smith made this announcement, the supply chain had corrected. Children's medication on route to Alberta, but pharmacy says shortage has Past. This was January 18th, 2023. We flushed $70 million down the drain. Not even down the drain, because we didn't even get the drain. We gave $70 million away. We just gave it away. That's the kind of deal the Danny and Co negotiated because they wanted to own the feds and show what a good job they could do at solving the crisis. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on our new and regular segment, Stuff Danny Says. Now, the reason I know there's some people are going to be like, oh, why'd you choose that picture? And there's that's a bit of an Easter egg, actually, that will be revealed once we get the, the video intro, because we're going to have a video intro for this segment on an ongoing basis. Um, that is pulled from Danielle Smith's cancer comments, where she made the stage four cancer comments. So it's not like we went hunting. We deliberately went and pulled an image from when she was saying that if you get stage four cancer, it's your own, your own fault. You weren't proactive enough. But let's get into it. Let's get into the stuff that Danielle Smith said this week. And we had an episode yesterday of Your Province, Your Premier. And I mean, thank God that they're only every two weeks now. But wow, 
did yesterday go sideways on Smith in a big way. And also she said some things. But the first clip that we want to play, just to show you how much uh, bullshit they're able to pack into the, the Danielle Smith bullshit hour. Uh, that's what we're going to call it. I'm not sure. Your, your province, your premier, I think is what it's actually called. We're going to call it the Danielle Smith bullshit hour going forward. We're going to play a clip where she was asked uh, specifically about the Tylenot. Will you go on the record and apologize to the people of Alberta for wasting an excess of $80 million on the weak, unused painkillers you purchased? You know, I think people have to remember what was happening at that time because we had a lot of supply chain problems. No one knew when we were going to get children's Tylenol, children's uh, ibuprofen. There were, uh, when you have a high fever of a very young child and you can't bring it down, it can cause a serious harm to that child, even even death in the worst cases. Mums were going on to Facebook pages talking about how they would be able, whether they could find some and whether they could swap it. People were, were going pharmacy to pharmacy. People were actually going to the U.S. and Mexico and bringing back product. And so that's the environment you have to remember we were in. I was asked to do something and we did. We found uh, another supply. We brought it. We brought it in. We alleviated the crisis, and uh, now we'll, we'll we still have a contract open with them for how we might be able to to continue to fulfill that contract on others on other um, on other services. But you know what? People expected me to act, and I did. So again, as always with Danny, there's a lot to unpack there. It's worth noting, Daniel, when Daniel Smith made the announcement. There was already word that the supply chain crisis was in the process of resolving and would be resolved soon. As we saw from that January 18th news report where pharmacists were saying, yeah, you know what? We, we got the stuff now. It's no big deal. We, it's cool. That was before any of the, the Daniel Smith product hit the shelves of any pharmacies, to be clear. So did she alleviate the crisis? No. Did the $70 million of taxpayer money that got wasted alleviate the crisis? No. But there's some other things that she's saying in there that are just patently false, as has been addressed by multiple physicians who work in, in children's emergency rooms and pediatricians. Fever doesn't cause death. The worst thing, and it's scary to be sure, the worst thing that can happen with a fever is that the kid may experience something called a febrile seizure or a seizure that's brought on by a very, very quick spike of a fever. And those are very, very scary, but they're not in and of themselves life-threatening. They usually self-resolve. So for Daniel Smith to say, ah, oh, you know, kids were going to die left, right, and center like little apples falling from trees is unmitigated bullshit. And she didn't bring it in in time. In fact, she didn't bring in the vast majority of what she ordered because, again, 250,000 bottles that were brought in were only for hospital use. Of that 250,000, only 9,000 have been used. The other 250000 that was made available for pharmacist shelves, I mean, it's got an expiry. Uh, the ibuprofen expires in November 2025, and the acetaminophen expires in January 2026. So they got a couple years to sell it. But as many people pointed out when she first ordered it, who's going to buy the off-brand Turkish stuff with the, the inconsistent dosing? 
when compared to all of the other products on the market. Who's going to buy that when they can buy the cheaper regular brand stuff that they're used to and that they trust? She didn't do anything to alleviate the crisis. She managed to funnel $80 million of taxpayer dollars out of the taxpayer purse, and we still don't know why. Other than it was another Danielle Smith vanity project. But it quickly turned to questions of the, the pension, and in particular, questions on the flawed survey. Format of the online survey. Uh, it asks people what they would like to see in an Alberta pension plan, but it doesn't ask whether they even want the plan. Why is that? Well, because I think people haven't really had a chance to process the idea that we might have our own pension plan, what it would look like. So part of the consultation is telling people what it would look like. There's a few components to it. One is the asset transfer um, and how we would invest that. The other is the amount of premiums we would pay and whether people would prioritize those being lower. Uh, the other would be the amount of pension benefit our seniors would get. And those would be higher. So we wanted to give people the information and just see what their initial reaction to it was. So that was part of the reason why it's structured that way. And so we're getting some great feedback. And if we feel like people um, have enough information that they want to go to a referendum, then ultimately that's what we will do. So let's be clear what Smith said there. She opens by saying, she's asked the question, why was the survey so flawed? Why didn't you just answer, ask, why didn't you let people answer the question? Do you want a pension? Yes or no. And her answer was, well, there's not enough people that have even thought about the idea of a pension plan. For most people, haven't, it hasn't even occurred to them. So what we need to do is we need to explain to them why it's such a great idea. And, and why we believe that there's all of these benefits. So again, this isn't a consultation. This isn't a conversation. This is a sales pitch, period. And it's a sales pitch that's costing Albertans $8 million. But that wasn't the, the only pension question that came up. Have found is that with the LifeMark report, we're entitled to three hundred and thirty-four billion dollars because we overcontribute. Those over contributions keep on getting invested. We continue to overcontribute, and as a result, our seniors here have dramatically overpaid in their entire time in in, in their working lives. A lot and of so disagreement over those numbers, though, uh, Premier Smith. Did you expect that? How are we going to know? Which numbers are the right ones, I, if ever? I would hope, well, there will be a, a, a firm answer. We have to have a firm answer. That's what we've heard from people. Uh, what we've asked, the, we've asked the federal government, we've asked Christopher Freeland, if you think that our calculation is wrong or we've misinterpreted the act, then tell us what you think it should be. We've also asked the CPPIB Investment Board as well. If you think we've misinterpreted the act, do your own analysis and tell us what that number is. And so we're waiting to see if they will give us that answer. If not, I mean, this is, a, 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 we'll, we'll ultimately have to be decided from a legal perspective we'll have to ask the court to give us their judgment on what the act says okay so so much <laughs> when when i did the interview with trevor tomb dr trevor tomb i did i did a little bit of a bit there was a little bit of a, a an easter egg because when danielle smith first announced that this thing was going to be a thing and she released the life work um report she got it right the first time she said it in the press conference. 
And then she decided to change the name of the report to Life Mark. Nobody knows why. But I did a little bit of a bit during the Trevor Tomb interview where I deliberately went out of my way to 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 get the name wrong because it was it was it was a bit. Um, but it's gotten to the point where it's no longer funny. We are almost two months into this conversation, and Danielle Smith still can't get the co- the name of the company that wrote the report that she put so much stock in, she still can't get the name of the company right? This is the world that we live in? It's absolutely wild. But there's some other things that, that need to be unpacked in this clip. Obviously, we already talked about how the overpaid... <clears throat> overpaid thing works and let's be clear seniors have absolutely not overpaid for pensions in this province period that's not an argument that anybody is making even the fraser institute's argument is well alberta overpays because we have more young people who are saving for their their pensions and their futures through the cpp than there are people who are currently receiving the cpp so you know if you look at it that way then we've overpaid it but nowhere has there been an argument that's been made that seniors in alberta somehow overpaid this is danielle smith straight up lying to people again And it's mind-blowing that this radio station continues to give her the platform to do it, but the host, I mean, while there's some debate around those numbers, that's not calling her on her bullshit. That's saying, well, there's some debate around the numbers, and then giving her the next three minutes to try to justify and throw out even more bullshit so that you can't keep up with it. But again, we get to the firm answer. Albertans deserve a firm answer. So on one side of her mouth, she's saying, oh no, the life mark numbers are the accurate ones. But we do still need to get Albertans a firm answer. Let's be clear. The political game that's being played and being paid for to the tune of $8 million is Danielle Smith trying to get the two people that she needs to make villains out of. Whether it's the government of Canada or whether it's the CPPIB, it's getting one of those people, one of those organizations to step forward and say, wow, Danny, your numbers are fiction. They don't in any way get to a real place. They're absolute unmitigated fiction. And then Danny gets to say, oh, you see, this is why we need to do it, because they've already started to try to screw us. And props for the federal government, the CPBIB, for not taking the bait. Hopefully they don't. There's no shortage of finance ministers and premiers from other provinces who have stepped forward to say, yeah, those numbers, that dog don't hunt. But that's what the whole strategy here is. Daniel Smith is trying to get the CPPIB and the federal government to throw out a low, lower number than over half of the assets. And she's added in this new little flavor of, oh, and also the, the seniors are just getting so screwed and it's so sad and our seniors deserve better. But she was also asked about 
one of the other benefits of being in the CPP as opposed to a provincial plan. And that has to do with the pool size. The more money you have, the more return on investment that you get. Here's the question. One of the criticisms that came up recently of Premier Smith is there is some truth in having a greater pool of population contributing to a pension plan uh, than there is for a smaller pool of, of, of the population such as Alberta would have. Would, would you agree with that? If we weren't overpaying, then yeah, I, I could see the wisdom of that. But what is happening is that the, the rest of the country is asking Albertans with our small population to overpay to subsidize the larger population. That's part of the reason why we've overpaid so much over the years and why those uh, those those uh, overpayments have compounded to the level that they have. So that's the question. I mean, maybe Canadians are happy and Albertans are happy with us continuing this unfairness and the way the plan is structured, but I've always felt like exactly as your as your uh, your your uh, texter put it that the benefit of being in a larger plan shouldn't be that you end up paying more than you otherwise would. The benefit of being a part of a larger plan should be that you should pay less than you otherwise would. It's is it completely upside down? First of all, we do pay less because if you take a look at what. Quebec's pension plan rates are, they are higher than the CPP. Now, Quebec didn't join the CPP. They said, well, we'll do it our own because we're Quebec and that's kind of our gem. Um, And they did that banking on having a younger population as well. And it didn't work out for them. And now they pay a higher rate than the rest of Canada does in part because of the not having the younger population, but also in part because Canada has a bigger pool. So we get more return on investment. But again, this is where Daniel Smith engages in her, her passive aggressive response to conversation. Well, if Albertans and Canadians think that it's, it's okay that we've been dealing with this unfairness because we've been overpaid. First of all, it's not unfair. Everybody across the country pays the same rate. People who make more get to a maximum. People who make less maybe don't hit that maximum. But that is not a factor of geography. That's a factor of income. And as we've already established, Albertans don't overpay. We have a younger population. There's more of them that are paying into their own pension futures. And because there are more people who are paying into their own pension futures than there are people who are currently receiving a pension, that somehow equates to Alberta has overpaid. And she said some variation of overpaid five times in that just over a minute response. So again... Daddy's clearly been doing very good at memorizing her talking points, but they aren't rooted at all in truth. And the tragedy of all of this is she acknowledges herself that if you had a larger pool and you weren't overpaying, you'd be better off. We're not overpaying. But you can't get there. But it didn't take long before some of the other questions. Uh, Again, it was a fascinating uh, little episode 
of the the Dan, uh, Daniel Smith bullshit hour because there were some people who showed up to to push her on some issues, but there were also some familiar talking points that she just couldn't. Despite the fact that she's been told these talking points are not true, she still clings to them like a life preserver. Would you concede that hey, if something comes along and we're able to reach that goal? Is that something that would be on the table? In other words, we're going to do our darndest to reach it. And if we do, fantastic. If we don't, maybe our efforts towards that goal, even if we fall short, will enable us to at least reduce the timeline from 2050. In other words, we've got nothing to lose by trying and everything to gain. 100%. But here's the problem. The federal government and their clean electricity regs wants to make it a criminal code violation if you don't achieve it. And so there is no one who is going to invest on a best efforts basis if they fail in January 2035, they come and haul the, the, the CEO away to prison. I mean, that, that's just not going to be an environment where people are going to want to invest in. Now, again, a lot to unpack here. Danny's clinging to the notion that if a uh, natural gas energy plant doesn't hit 95% carbon capture by 2035, that the the RCMP are going to show up at the CEO's door and cart them off to jail, despite the fact that literally everybody has said that's not the type of criminal law that we're talking about. It would be fines. It would be lots of other things. But there's not going to be CEOs being run off to jail. That's not a thing that's going to happen. So getting that out of the way, there's a couple other things that that are worth highlighting. First of all, while the Infrastructure Assessment Act has been ruled to be in part unconstitutional, the federal government has said they're going to go and they're going to go fix the unconstitutional parts and the that regulation will remain in place. That regulation isn't what determines whether or not there is emissions caps by 2035. Now, Daniel Smith likes to talk about things like Alberta can say, well, we're going to do things our way. But the reality is the Supreme Court has already ruled that emissions are within federal jurisdiction. So there's nothing to indicate as of right now that the federal government is going to say, hey, you know what, that 2035 goal, you're right, Danny, we're going to we're going to just walk it all the way back and and you can you can do whatever you want. The, the legal framework for that doesn't exist. But let's take a look at what she's saying. What she's saying is, boy, I really wish more people will build natural gas plants. But right now, if anybody builds a natural gas plant, they're going to go to jail if they're not able to get to 95% uh, carbon reduction by 2035. Why would anybody want to build a natural gas plant here when that's going to be the case? I can't imagine why anybody is, why don't we have more natural gas plants in the queue? I don't know, maybe because the premier of Alberta keeps saying that CEOs are going to be put in jail. Like, it's absolutely mind-blowing that this is the position that she wants to take and continue to advocate for, while at the same time complaining at length that, hey, you know what? I really wish we had more natural gas in the queue. I don't understand why more people don't want to put more natural gas in the queue. Life is really unfair. It's not a great sales pitch to say, 
hey, you should come build a natural gas plant in Alberta. I'd really like you to come and build a natural gas plant in Alberta. But we've got this prime minister. And if you don't hit his goals, it's going to he's going to put you in jail, even though the federal government has said nobody's going to jail. But we've still got because, of course, we do. We got more Danny uh, stuff. Danny says, and this is where, you know, we got to we got to really take a second to appreciate the. If you have listened to your province, your premier for any length of time, first of all, congratulations for making it this far. <laughs> Um, because it's a painful show to listen to. One of the biggest reasons why it's a painful show to listen to is A, Daniel Smith lies a lot, but also B, it's a very painful show to listen to because there's a lot of sick fans. There's a lot of people who seem to just want to call in to hear their voice on the radio and tell Daniel Smith that, gosh, you're just, you're the best premier ever. I sure do appreciate all the things that you're doing, like wasting $80 million on drugs that we'll never, ever receive and $8 million on an advertising campaign when we don't even know what we're trying to sell and another $7.5 million on a tele-feds program that's really starting to piss off the rest of the country or at least the four other provinces, three other provinces that it's being advertised in. Um, those those things that you're doing are, are just great. But this weekend was different. Calling in from Airthorpe. Go ahead, William. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm wondering, Danielle, when you're going to stop lying to the people of Alberta, when you'll actually start helping the people of Alberta, instead of helping a multi-billion dollar fossil fuel industry who is destroying the biodiversity of our province and destroying the future of our next generation. All right. Uh, I think we got the gist of what William is talking about. Uh, go well, ahead, he's Premier just, Smith. He's just wrong. I mean, look, any any type of industry that has an impact on the environment has policies to limit the impact while they're doing the extraction and then return the land to as natural condition as possible as quickly as possible when they're done. And and I would say that the the industry is is doing a better job than it ever has. They 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 had a target to reclaim $500 million in, in liabilities this year based on rules we put in place that they have to start doing their, uh, taking care of their historic liabilities. And they exceeded it by over $200 million. And they're going to continue with that level of investment until all the cleanup is done. So look, I mean, I, I know that there were legacy issues, absolutely. But I can tell you that the, the people who are in charge of these companies today, they care about the environment. They are committed to cleaning it up. They are committed to getting to zero emissions by 2050. And and I'm very pleased with the leadership that I'm seeing. Hey, Danny, when are you going to stop being a big shill for big oil? Not today, let me tell you. There's so much that she got factually and demonstrably wrong in that statement. So, first of all, if all of the companies that do things that affect the environment had things in place, the province of Alberta would not be facing down. And this is a conservative estimate to some, by some people's uh, opinion, a quarter of a trillion, that's with a T, in liabilities from orphan wells and abandoned wells over the immediate future. The fact that the province of Alberta is in a place where we're going to potentially have to pony up on the taxpayer dime a quarter of a trillion dollars in order to address all of these wells doesn't speak to responsible oil and gas development. 
The fact that Danielle Smith herself was advocating for a program called R-Star, where she was going to give oil and gas companies extra money to clean up the things that they're legally supposed to clean up anyways, speaks to the fact that at one point in time, Danielle Smith knew that there was a problem. And Lord knows, if she pursues anything like the R-Star program, that in and of itself will be a tacit admission that there is, in fact, a problem. But even if we take a look at how oil and gas, some of the biggest oil and gas companies have chosen to uh, deal with their cleanup responsibilities, one doesn't have to look very far back in the last couple of years to remember when the federal government gave provinces a billion, with a B, dollars to use it towards cleaning up their well sites. And what did we see from the oil and the biggest oil and gas companies in the province of Alberta? They took the money, but there was no increase in how many wells they cleaned up. No substantive increase. So basically, what happened was the federal government gave a billion dollars to oil and gas companies. And they said, that's great. Normally, we would spend like $300 million a year on cleanup. Um, but now what we can do is we can take the $300 million that you're going to give us. And instead of using our own money to do the cleanup, we'll use yours. And then we can kick that $300 million that we would have spent on cleanup back to our shareholders. This comes at a time, of course, when many of the largest oil and gas companies are reaching record profits. And I'm not against oil and gas. That's one of the reasons why we opened with the story that we did, that with WOW, we may very well be looking at peak oil in the next decade. That doesn't mean that we're going to stop using oil and gas. That doesn't mean doesn't mean see uh, a decrease in the amount of production from uh, Alberta's oil and gas. And in fact, economist Andrew Leach has speculated we might even continue to get significant revenues from oil and gas down the road. So I'm not saying oil and gas is bad. What I'm saying is if you believe that corporations for whom their primary responsibility is to make their shareholders rich isn't going to make sure they're fulfilling that primary responsibility, all others be damned. You're delusional. Alberta is in the problem that it's in with abandoned and orphaned wells because there are companies that are not responsible. That's just the reality. But it also speaks to Danielle Smith's willingness to listen to the concerns of William when she opens with, he's just wrong. He's not a lot of what he said was wrong. And Daniel Smith's answer of pivoting from the question that was in effect, when are you going to stop being a shill for big oil, to responding by being a shill for big oil, when her own arguments about our starting to negate that, really kind of seemed to indicate what her priorities are, at least. But that wasn't the only question that came up. Questions about the power grid came up as well. I, want to ask, I just want to ask you... Um, like why? Why are you running these these misinformation uh, ads? I just had a I just had a neighbor who came over to my place yesterday and spent four thousand dollars on a gen set because he's worried about blackouts. And you and I both know there's no situation where we'd have a blackout here in this province. And I know that you can say that. There was eight times there was almost a blackout here. 
that's not realistic, Premier. And why are you doing this? The, you're you're taking it out on new Canadians that trust the government, trust what they say, and you're going on with this. I'm not even getting into the CPP, but to get on with this uh, with the electricity grid to try and scaremonger people to think that we're going to have blackouts here is completely unrealistic. Like, I mean, you can buy power from pretty well any other province, not to mention the fact that the rates in this province are the highest in the country, and it's not even close, Miss Premier. So I just just would like your... uh, just would like your rebuttal on that because I really think it's really a disgusting campaign that you're running on these people. Well, I, I can tell Thanks. you that we 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 are in danger of having the grid fail. And I have to be honest with people about that, which is why we have to take measures to make sure that we have more baseload power coming onto the grid. We, uh, quite frankly, we, we shouldn't have phased out coal as fast as we did. We uh, we've had a, a plan to phase it out to 2030, which would have allowed for a reliable addition to the grid of more power as we needed it. And and instead, we're uh, when we have our our max days at twelve thousand megawatts in the depth of winter and twelve thousand mega megawatts in the heat of summer, the uh, the grid's in trouble. It's stressed. That's what why we've Barry's, had. What about Barry's point that you can always buy electricity from no, elsewhere? It's not true. I mean, every province is now facing this that they are constrained. In Quebec, <clears throat> they are no longer uh, signing long term industrial power agreements because they just don't have reliable supply after twenty twenty eight. In British Columbia, we are. Uh, they need their their power for the expansion of LNG Canada if they're going to go to, to the second phase of that. Um, I'm I'm told as well. Manitoba's in the same situation. Everyone is in the same situation that we're all constrained. That we need to double our power between now and 2050. If we're going to solve this problem, we've got to solve it here. And so that's part of the reason why I'm very concerned that we don't have. We have barely any applications for new baseload power. Baseload power are things like hydroelectric. We ju- we just don't have the capacity or the, the type of river system here to allow for large-scale projects. Nuclear, we've never done nuclear before. Natural gas, there's nobody lining up to do a natural gas uh, project because the new rules being put in place by the federal government would force them to go to jail if they don't meet these targets by 2035. So I'm we have to realize we've got to solve this problem here. Baseload power is important because part of the reason why the grid fails is that on those days when it's minus 30 and the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, we have to rely 100% on dispatchable power. Uh, we've had two instances in the in uh, in the in the last year where we had near failure, where there was no wind and solar practically at all. They were pr- producing less than 100 megawatts of power. That's the situation that we're in. We have to educate people because they've gotten used to having a reliable power grid because we had so much reliability we got from coal. And now, unfortunately, because of, of decisions that have been made prior to me getting there, we have unreliability, and I want to fix it. So let's be really clear. What Danny's saying there, um, first of all, that gentleman raised an extraordinarily important point, and it really can't be underscored. When the government or people in positions of leadership engage in what can only be described as hyperbolic rhetoric, they burn the trust of the people who want to believe them. 
the fact that somebody who based on what this uh, this call-in gentleman is talking about, somebody who's a new Canadian who b- wants to and believes he can trust the government, went out and spent $4,000 on a generator that he almost certainly, a backup generator in case of blackouts because of the hyperbole that Daniel Smith's been throwing around. And the fact that she responded by saying, oh no, the, 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 the grid's absolutely at, at risk of failing. If it was truly an all hands on deck, the grid is at risk of failing situation. One would think that a provincial government would be doing everything it could to get every kind of power tied into the grid. But instead, what we have Daniel Smith in the UCP doing is launching a seven month moratorium on large solar projects. And let's be clear, these are not large solar projects that the government has to go out of pocket for. These are large solar projects that people are wanting to bring. 42 billion, if we're to believe Danielle Smith's number, 42 billion of renewable projects, renewable energy, that people are wanting to invest in the province of Alberta. And this doesn't include, this is all over one megawatt. So this is not your rooftop solar at your house. And the big thing to take in mind in this whole conversation is that every time somebody does put rooftop solar on, even if it's only a small percentage of the overall baseload, it's still creating baseload. Even if it's not producing at full capacity. And if you have, as Danielle Smith claims, $42 billion in renewable energy projects that are currently on hold because she's got her moratorium in place for reasons that we still haven't been able to figure out. One can only imagine how much extra energy that would be bringing to the grid. If we truly were facing a crisis, one would think we wouldn't be shutting down $42 billion of renewable energy for reasons we would be doing everything that we could to get that energy deployed because even a solar panel. And again, there's a lot of debate. A lot of people are saying, you know, we, we talked about a, a study that was done a couple of years ago. There's only a 3% reduction on uh, solar panels because of snow. Um, even if you have, a solar panel that's only operating at 10%, even if you do. If you allow that project to go ahead, that is a solar panel that's producing 10% energy that you didn't have before you were started. So the moratorium makes absolutely no sense if we're to believe anything that Danny says, but as history has taught us, um, not so reliable with the facts the the Smith is with her her life mark report. Got one more clip to play, and then we're gonna we're gonna open it up to the floor for anybody who wants to wants to weigh in tonight. I'm gonna put a little bit of a cap because we're already hitting the two hour mark, but uh, we'll have a couple people. If anybody wants to tag in, you can join on the X spaces, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. We got one more clip though, and this is revisiting the forced treatment that Joseph Shaw talked about. 
session of the legislature starts on Monday. There had been some talk uh, earlier after your election of the Compassionate Intervention Act. Has that been delayed? Is it, are we going to expect it to be introduced in this session? As, as No, it's not going to be introduced in this session. It has to be consulted on first. So the consultation will begin very shortly. And then it will, um, depending on how that goes, it would it would be something that we would, uh, if we if we get the results that um, uh, back in time, where we have a pretty good idea of how to proceed with it, maybe as early as the spring, but more likely next fall. So, again... And I know that I'm I'm kind of harping on this a little bit, but it is it is so telling the philosophy that's at play here with this government when they are willing to reject evidence based treatment modalities that work that get people help in the ways that they need it and that they're able to accept it, and rather than pursue those. This government consistently tries to control people. That's what this whole compassionate intervention, which is, I mean, you can polish a turd as much as you want. Still a turd. Might be shiny, but it's still a turd. Forcing people to accept treatment doesn't work. It has more negative outcomes. This has been researched. So it's not about getting people help. It's about reasserting our sense of control over people so that we can feel like we're just making the problem go away as opposed to actually dealing with the things that have caused these people to be in these situations. It's wild to me on a personal level that the folks that scream and stamp their feet the most about the importance of freedom are those that in so many ways are the quickest to abandon it and to pursue the opposite. Because that's what forced treatment is. Daniel Smith, the same premier, who said that vaccine passports, rewarding people who were following evidence-based medicine and limiting the ability of people who weren't following evidence-based medicine to interact with the rest of people, that was unacceptable to Danielle Smith. That was a violation of freedoms in the highest order. But when it comes to, can we just make the people using the drugs go away? That's okay. And it says a lot about where the priorities are. You can tell a lot about a government or about anyone in a leadership position based on who they advocate for and who they target. And when governments and people in leadership make targets of the most vulnerable among us, that's something that everybody should be paying attention to. We decided when we were talking, um, hey, stuff Daniel Smith says, what are we gonna, what are we gonna, what are we gonna end it with? Because unquestionably, Nate's gonna end it on a downer. And uh, the consensus came in: you can't have a segment without an opening and a closer. We're working on editing together the opening, but we do have the closer. And it's my favorite Danny clip of all time. BS detector resolved over time. Uh, I tend to be pretty trusting. 
It never gets old for me. It just, it's the second nod. It's like the, I gave an answer and I got it right, right? I just, I can watch that clip all day, every day and never, ever, ever get tired of it. Um, so that's our, that's the end of our Stuff Danny Says segment. We are going to have next week, we're going to have a, a very special video introduction for that one. And uh, also next week, we're going to have our very special interview with that high-ranking uh, leadership person from Take Back Alberta. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, we also have some other very exciting surprises that we're going to be rolling out. Our Patreon sponsors already got a little bit of an early preview. It's moved along a lot since we posted that picture. Um, but we're now going to open it up for the open mic. We've had Cassandra waiting for quite some time. So we're going to go ahead and bring her in. I imagine she's got a, a little bit of a laundry list given the number of topics that we covered today. I remember when like the shows were like <laughs> half an hour, 45 minutes. And it was like, oh, I guess we talked about everything. And now it's like we're still pruning stuff out. Cassandra, what's going on tonight? Oh, well, there's, yeah. I, I, I honestly, um, I can't, I, there was a lot of things at the beginning where I'm like, oh, this, 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 and that. And I'm not, my brain couldn't retain them all to the end because I'm, I don't know if you can hear me, but I am not feeling 100%. Yeah, you sound a little under the weather, the breakdown, the show where you have to make notes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I I might have to start doing, yeah. <laughs> Normally, I can keep it all up there. I mean, the one thing I was thinking about on the pension plan is I was having, I you know, I got into a polite conversation with somebody and it was trying to tell me about how they, how we pay more into CPP and Al Albertans pay more into CPP than people in other provinces. and And I was pointing out the fact that it's capped at around 66,000. So no matter how much you make over 66,000, you're still contributing the same amount as if you made, I think it's 66. It's around there. Yeah. It's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, the city of Toronto has 2 million more people than the entire province of Alberta might indicate that, that we don't actually pay in. And then they told me that, that we uh, apparently Alberta has more workers than Ontario, than Ontario. And then I'm like, well, but Ontario has 8.2 million full-time workers and we have 2.4 workers total. I don't know. Something like that. I can't remember the the exact numbers but anyway it was it was it was an interesting exercise in mental gymnastics that this person was going through trying to convince me anyway <laughs> um but that's that's pretty much all i got i wanted to give a, an update um i probably you know i was realizing as i've been updating everybody on my trials and tribulations that uh, i probably at times sound a bit bipolar because I'm been on these highs and lows and I, um, I, you know, I have PTSD, but I also have ADHD and, and very much you can get on these, especially when you're overstimulated, you can, when you're being overstimulated by a lot of things, it can 
it can seem like, wow, she's really high and then she's really low. <laughs> and, um, and, and so that's, it, it's an observation. I mean, I'm not typically always very self-aware in that I'm not, I, I don't always, I, I, I don't always, I'm not able to gauge how other people see me all the time too. I honestly, Cassandra, I would not worry about it uh for a couple of different reasons first of all i think that we have uh, an audience that that by and large appreciates uh that and those that don't don't tend to stick around for too long um yeah. <laughs> no i know i'm just i'm leading up to something oh, okay and, sir i'll get out of your way <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i know i sometimes i'm a bit drawn out into in how that, that's the other thing about having adhd you can you can take the the long way around, you know, to the point. So anyway, <laughs> um, I like to do the ring around the rosy first, you know. That's fair. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, like uh, you know, I was pretty high last week, and my daughter had come out, and because um, I was feeling a bit overwhelmed with what I had, and she honestly did a wonderful job of helping me pack and and you know getting some of my stuff moved to storage so that we could try to lessen the load um so that it wouldn't cost me so much to move you know hire somebody to move the rest because of course Aish is refusing to pay to move my stuff to storage even though my do my doctor has said that me physically lifting and carrying things would be detrimental to my health. Um, and they will only move me if I have a residence. So we're trying to reduce the cost since it looks like I'm going to have to pay myself. And she did an absolutely wonderful job. And of course, it was wonderful just to have my daughter here. And, and it was great. And then on Monday, I, um, I drove her to the airport to drop her off and on the way back from the airport and of course monday of course was the first snow of the year the roads were absolutely horrendous like i i live about i don't know 12 15 minutes from the airport and it took us about it took us over 30 minutes 35 minutes to get to the airport it was really slow and on the way back, um, I'm driving and um, I was parked, at a, I was at a red light and I heard this snap and my heater stopped working and I'm like, okay, that sounds like a serpentine belt or something. And, and I'm driving along going, well, let's see what I, you know, and then I all of a sudden noticed that it says, oh, voltage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the belt. And then it starts to overheat. So I'm like, yep, that's the belt. I pull over and let it cool off before trying to get it home. Of course, the ABS stops working to save the battery, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was my ride home from the airport Yikes. on Monday. And then... Um, called the mobile mechanic because I'm thinking, well, it's the belt, right? So the mobile mechanic comes out on Tuesday and he, uh, 
and he looks at it and he's going to put the belt on, right? We got the new belt and he's going to put the belt on and all of a sudden, I, and I watched his hand cause he's got, you know, he's got the configuration and you got to loop it in and out. And I just can't reach to do that stuff. So when he's looping it and I, and I see his, his arm kind of skip and he was like, and then he, and I'm like, uh Oh, and what had happened was the compressor, the air conditioning compressor, fell off the bolt snapped oh dear yeah yeah so i had to tow it to the shop and and uh, that was tuesday (laughs) and then so i'm thinking okay it's in the shop i should get it back by friday whatever i wake up wednesday and i felt so sick and i'm thinking it's a bad chest cold and this actually leads into a topic at the beginning of the show tonight. Oh. <laughs> Ironically, because I was listening and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. So I, um, yeah, I did a couple of rapid antigen tests at home. They did turn out negative. Well, that's good. Um, but by, yeah, like... Um, I, I, you know, I, I just kept getting worse. Like, honestly, it was starting to, like, I, every time I took a breath, I was coughing and the, the, it it caused me so much agonizing pain to cough, like in my ribs. I, I just felt like I was going to die. And I, anyway, Saturday morning I woke up and, um, I was just like, oh my God, I called, um, well, I called 811 and I said, okay, what does this sound like to you? And, you know, the registered nurse, you know, she goes over the question. She goes, no, I think you should call 911. Do you want me to call them for you? And so I said, no, I called them and they took me down to urgent care. And because I'm thinking at this point, like if, if, I mean, if it's not COVID, then, you know, I've got pneumonia or bronchitis or something, and it's worse than any bronchitis I've had, right? Because it it was hurting in the ribs so bad. And and I go in there, and, you know, I see the doctor, and and I was actually surprised because I would have thought that they would have, like, tested me for COVID, in urgent care um they did check me they did check my um my, i mean I, both in the ambulance and, and and in urgent care they they of course monitored my my uh, oxygen levels and and um they did do a chest x-ray which apparently came back clear which i was really shocked at That's for the amount of yeah, for the amount of pain I was in, because I just looked at it and I'm like, well, what gives then? Like, because I couldn't even move. Like, I'm like, what gives? Like, why am, why does this hurt so much if it's the only time I felt like this is like with the one time I had bronchitis where I was borderlining on pneumonia, which was like 12 years, 12, 15 years ago. And that's the last time I've had anything like that. And and she just said that apparently, I mean, her take was that 
they had seen influenza with some really bad body aches in the trunk, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know. That's well, that's where it's better soon. Yeah, no, I like honestly, I um, I, I I was. I mean, the one thing that concerned me was that because I've had friends with go through similar stuff, and they were actually tested when they went into the hospital or urgent care and, and I wasn't. So that kind of, I thought was a little weird. And I wonder if that has, if there's, I don't know. I, I, I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but is that skewing results? Right. Like when I was listening to you, I'm like, cause I thought that that was my understanding is that they're only doing tests for admissions now. And I mean, that's, I don't work in a hospital, so take that for, that's, that's what I've, right, what right, I've heard right. on the Twitter no, that spaces. makes sense. But like, I can tell like, you, like, when I had pneumonia four months ago, three, four months ago, whatever it was, uh, it was a little while ago, um, they didn't do a, I got, I got my chest x-ray and they were like, oh, damn. And, uh, they, they didn't do a, a, a COVID test either. So I think that it's, it's. It's at the point now where, um, unless it's an ad something that's going to require admission, they just, I mean, the rapid tests are not great. Um, so yeah. I, I, I think that it's probably just a, let's, let's treat the, the things that we can treat kind of thing. Um, right. but yeah, did you have yeah. anything else you wanted to add or? No, I just, um, like that's where I am. I should have been. I was thinking I would be moved out of here and, but now I'm waiting for a car and figuring, trying to figure that out. And yeah. And I just, yeah, I wanted to hear, cause I know, I know you, you're an EMT. So I thought maybe you had some perspective. Um, my, my experience working was exactly with it the same as a day to day. Yeah. My experience was exactly the same as a patient. And there are like, at, at the end of the day, I think that there are from, uh, I gotta be so careful here. Um, the, what I'm about to say is not in any way to be construed as medical advice. Uh, right. but I think that there are so many viruses that cause a really strong inflammatory response that if you've got any kind of underlying, um, susceptibility to inflammatory stuffs, it can make everything so much worse. Like I know when I had whatever virus I had, when I had my pneumonia, um, my, uh, my left knee, cause I'm getting older. Uh, my left knee got really angry at me and normally it's a little bit angry, but it's not like super angry. And that was just part of that same in inflammatory process. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my lungs were clear. So I guess that's, that's good. That is good. So I, I, I mean, like x-rays don't lie. So I'm going with that. Um, but yeah, but there is one more thing like, um, while we're, you know, been talking about my housing situation and keeping everybody updated and, 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 you know, a big part of that for me is, is just the fact that I feel like I'm not somebody that should be in this position. So if I'm in this position, how many other people? And um, I had a conversation with a lady today who is also somebody that has not, somebody that would fall into the traditional cycles of, of what we, or the stereotypes of homeless, being homeless. 
And she was a single, she's a single parent with an autistic son. And in her case, she doesn't have a lot of family, but she was, I guess, staying with a cousin. And that person, I guess, kept raising the rent and then eventually told her to get out with an autistic son. And there's like the rental market the way it is. And she's actually living out of an Airbnb. And, but other than that, like her story is very similar to mine is, is she actually, she's on the, you know, list for Calgary housing. Her priorities a little, she can raise it a little bit higher because both she has a special needs son and she's, you know, uh, got a child, right? Like he's not, yeah, he's child and he's special needs. So, Oh, Cassandra, your audio just got really squirrely. Oh, did it? Yeah. Is, it, is that better? Nope. It sounds like you're in a, a, a tin oh, cup. Shit. I wonder what happened there. Well, I'll tell you what. Hold that thought, and we will. I will make sure that we have space for a housing conversation with you next weekend. Yeah, no, I just wanted to tell you about the lady. That's that's why, because she's she's in hardship. Okay. Yeah. You are an incredible advocate, Cassandra. Um, thank you so much for the 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 compassion that you share with the the universe. It's pretty cool. Well, thank you. I I just feel like if you know about it and you see it, you should do it, right? Like you gotta call it out, right? I agree. Well, I hope you feel better soon. And I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do the 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 two plug at the the end of the show. And in the meantime, and in between time, uh, we got two other people who have requested to speak. So I'm gonna bring in Chris, and then uh, a bunch of S's and T's and A's. Uh, but we'll go with Chris first. So Chris, what's going on tonight? Hey, not much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, do I sound clear? Or do you want me to switch off my headphones? That's not terrible. Okay, let me know if I need to switch. Anyway. Uh, I won't take up too much of your time. I just, uh, I could honestly go on about the pension and uh, some of the topics we've discussed all night, but uh, I'll stick to one thing, uh, one ob observation I've had this week, which was, um, so it was this Wednesday that we had uh, Daniel Smith say, hey, we're going to get a firm number on this. Well, um, according to Michelle uh, Belfontaine, the CBC Provincial Affairs Reporter for Alberta, um, Smith only said that after uh, Dean Bennett from the Canadian Press uh, persistently questioned her on this. So I think there's something to say about, I don't think Smith meant to say, yeah, there's going to be a firm number. I think if no one had ever asked her and, and she could have, she would have went with the life works report. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I generally, I don't know. I think that there's, I really do like the, I'm watching how, there are independent academic economists who are coming and they're stepping out and they're saying, yeah, your numbers don't work. Um, and she's totally pretending that's not happening. She wants but, numbers from the federal government and the CPPIB so that she can demonize them. But I think the reason why this is happening is because no one's saying it to her face. People are saying at best, they're like saying it glancing. Oh yeah, you know, well, those numbers are in dispute. Those numbers are like this. No one is saying to her, to her face, your numbers are insane. The numbers don't work. There are other people, and here are their numbers. You look at um, 
uh, Justin Trudeau's letter, you look at the CPIB letter, you look at um, so many different examples. It's, it's, yes, it's an open letter to Smith, it's an open letter to the government, vice versa. But it's never, like, when you look at her, but when you talk to Smith and you see Smith and you see her interact with people, and you can look at the conference as an example, she, when she is confronted to her face, she gets frazzled. She immediately starts to try and say, no, no, yeah, like, um, you know, the whole thing where she had that back and forth with that guy in the audience. I mean, I generally think that if if more people were just honestly, like, like and again, you, you had examples of this on the radio, although I would argue that even then, yes, there was um, the couple people that, you know, gave those really good questions to her. But because it was a Collins show, she was able to have unmitigated or like uninterrupted response. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a back and forth where it could be corrected real time. So I, I generally think that, that if you look at the Bennett example, where he persistently, like, I wish we had video of this. I would beg the universe to give me video of this exchange. But from what, I, and again, this is all anecdotal. I'm not saying I know this for a fact. I'm just saying, just from what I read, I'm curious to see what would happen if we had more video footage of Daniel Smith being persistently questioned by reports. Even look, here, another example is Rick Bell. Uh, going back to the E. coli situation where Rick Bell said, hey, um, we've you've given us these responses as to why you weren't there, but this doesn't work. You could have been here. Where were you? Like Bell, and again, not saying that Bell's great. He, he's, he's had his uh, columns that are for her more than against. But even then, you had at least uh, an example where you know she was uh, questioned repeatedly to her face, and then the only response she had at that moment was. Oh well, we'll take that criticism for next time. I, I, I just wonder what would happen to the Alberta electorate if they saw more video footage of her being persistently questioned and challenged. Would they start to again? Not saying that people aren't already doing that to a point, but I just I, I just wonder what the effect would be on the next year and a half of what we're going to see with the legislation and with the pension plan because you know for a fact this is going to referendum. The government will, um, unless the government says, oh, we're going to have a uh, uh, empirical study type thing that says this is a referendum, they're, they're just going to do it. They're gonna say, oh, yeah, we think Albertans want it. Well, I mean, here's what I'll, what I'll say to that, man. I mean, A, I would be willing to speculate uh, that she would not allow it. Uh, I think that what we would see very, very quickly, I mean, this is the the same premier who went to the, okay, so we're just not going to do follow-up questions anymore. You can ask your one question, I can use words, and then you don't get a follow-up question. So, I I mean, she's back to the two questions, thank goodness for that, but I I would, you know, if I was going to tap into the the insurance, problematic days of my youth, my response would probably sound something like, well, you know, they did say on your province, your premier this week that uh, they, they don't pre-screen the questions. And so I would be willing to speculate that if 20 or 30 people who wanted to get some answers to these questions all asked the exact same question, Danielle Smith, how come you're not acknowledging 
Trevor Chum's uh, research that says your numbers are wrong? How come you're not acknowledging um, the Fraser Institute's um, assessment that your numbers are wrong? How come you're not acknowledging Andrew Leach's uh, assessment that your numbers are wrong? Why will you only accept different numbers from the CPPIB or the federal government? I guarantee you, if, if 30 or 40 people lined up in the the phone queue to ask that exact question in two weeks when your province, your premier goes back on air. Um, I mean, you might get an answer to your, what would that, what would that sound like question? <laughs> the, you know, the, one thing I'll add to that is that you make a good point. Um, actually, I tried calling into that program yesterday and it was a nightmare. No matter how many times I tried calling or whatever. And I looked at the number for the, the program. I'm not going to say it or anything. I'm not a jerk with that, but point is i tried to call the program a few times and just it kept giving me a busy tone and obviously it was just really busy and they were getting all these calls but yeah no it was uh because the only question i want to ask smith was if, joseph, if jim Dinning and joseph smith, or sorry joseph Chow have both said um the, the referendum is happening that the government wants the referendum how can you keep telling us Oh, the the panels to see if we want to yeah. pick a like. I, you know what? If you just stuck with one message, I'd appreciate. It. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, man. Yeah, so I'll, I'll let you go a little bit. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. And yeah, uh, thanks so much for tapping in. We're gonna bring in uh, Sat Stacker. Um, yeah. I'm gonna go. I don't. I don't remember seeing Sat Stacker before. I hope I'm saying that right. But. Uh, if you want to go ahead and unmute your mic, what's uh, what's going on tonight? Yeah, thanks. Uh, just uh, former Albertan here. I'm in Vancouver. Lucky um, you. So I, so I guess me, I, I paid into the CPP as an Albertan for a number of years and then moved to BC. So under Danielle Smith's thinking, somehow now I'm being shortchanged, but I'm just about to start to collect my CPP. So really, I just, I don't understand. She can't actually believe the CPP is unfair, can she? Because literally everyone that pays into it and gets benefits from it does so under the same formula. So how can that be unfair? And even the, the flawed LifeWorks uh, so-called study, I mean, in that, they, they even admit that they made no actuarial adjustment for intra-provincial uh, migration. So a whole bunch of Albertans leave Alberta and retire elsewhere or work there a short period of time. And none of that was calculated in their flawed methodology. And they also assumed that Albertans migrated out of Canada at the same rate as all other Canadians, which probably isn't true. Probably more Albertans go to Arizona when they retire than, say, I don't know, Ontarians. Well, I mean, if, so, you're, if you're, if you have the, I mean, the reality is, and this is something that Albertans, I don't know how long you lived in, in the fine province of Alberta, um, but this is something. 33 years. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've, I've lived here my whole, my whole life, which is not quite 30, a little bit more than 33 years. I'm not going to say the exact number, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we love in this province is, um, we love to be, um, strong and independent and self-starters and Western spirit and perpetual victims. And I don't understand how people square that because I do not feel the, the reality is, is Alberta, 
makes more. You take a look at the average wage of an Albertan and you compare it to literally anywhere else in the country. And we're like head and shoulders most years, if not all, for the last chunk of time, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, And so, you know, it's to your point, if you have more disposable income, you have um, more ability to travel to Arizona, but like the the notion that a program that is implemented exactly the same across the entire country uh, is in any way unfair. It's just more of that perpetual victimhood. And I mean, I don't know whether or not Smith actually believes it. If you if you had asked me ten years ago if she was spouting this line of rhetoric, I would have said, "Yeah, I don't think she does actually believe it. I think she's just trying to make people angry and make people upset." But when you take a look at the list of conspiracy theories that Daniel Smith has fully subscribed to over the last five years, like it's in the realm of possibility that the person who graduated from the University of Calgary with a degree in economics um, <laughs> buys this now. Uh, that's possible. And it pains um, me to say that, but I'm 50-50 as to whether or not she's just rage farming or whether or not she actually believes it. Yeah, it's uh, because it seems like a really she's picked a, a like can, CPP is a like probably the best national pension plan in the world. I think it was rated as such. Its returns are over the last 10 years were close to 11 percent. AIM, which is the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, I believe that's called, which is the largest pension manager in Alberta, is like. 300 basis points below the CPP in returns. They would likely get the contract to manage this fantasy, which will never happen. But so even like on just dollars and cents, it makes no sense. But uh, to me, they're like, she can't actually believe it. Therefore she's just using this as a wedge, which is dangerous. And it's likely to blow up in her face somehow. Like it's not going to end well. And it's like, it's not good for anyone. There's so many, like, where's the child, the $10 a day childcare? Didn't she run for that? This was not in her platform at all, is my understanding. Nope. It's like unbelievable. But You know, if it wasn't for the fact that I have watched that, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, there's a video that she put on her locals where she was in a hotel room and she was, Singing the, <laughs> singing the praises of all of the alternative uh, COVID treatments, and she had boxes of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, um, oh. and and she was like, "This is this is what people should be doing." If it wasn't for that, like some of the things that come out of her mouth, um. And and some of the conversations, like I, I go back to the conversation that we had with Thomas Lukasik, and he he was very clear. You give Danielle Smith a script, and boy, she can read the news. But if you ask her to critically think on her feet, she's going to do a face plant every single time. And I mean, Lukasik spent years in the legislature with her, uh, so I take his assessment with with some some grain of salt. But it's. It's, I mean, he spent more time with her than I have. And when you take a look at the, the, the folks that she's affiliated with, the causes that she's affiliated with, the positions that she's affiliated with. I mean, this is, this is a woman who said in 
front of a live microphone. And if it wasn't, um, if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, you get like a rookie politician, like Joseph Shaw, for example, if he says something stupid in front of the microphone, I'm going to go, that dude hasn't spent very much time in front of a microphone. But when you've been working as a, media personality for the better part of like what was it eight years and you're comfortable saying things like the unvaccinated are the most discriminated against group i can imagine in my lifetime like we're not fully thinking things through we're just not because i could list off like I don't know, probably 20 to 30 groups that would be way more discriminated against than the unvaccinated. But that's, that's who we have as, as the premier. Um, and so I, 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 I hear what you're saying and I would love to be at a place where I could, I could just say, Oh no, no, she's totally playing the game. Um, but history teaches seems to at least indicate otherwise. So I, I really hope you're right, because if you are, then there's at least some calculus going on. I'm just not convinced that this isn't anything more than Rob Anderson in the background going, here's that free Alberta strategy that I gave you. Yeah, I guess neither scenario bodes well for uh, all of us, actually. I mean, re retirements are just not something that you should play political football with. I like, this is something that I, I don't recall others doing. It's kind of a sacred cow and the CPP, like this is not going to end well. I don't think for her politically. Hopefully. No, it's a wild strategy. Like you take a look at the, the, the most active voting block in the province of Alberta. And it's not the 18 year olds. Um, it's the, the seniors, the, the senior citizens that, uh, stay abreast of these issues. It's the senior citizens that, um, do all of the, the, so much of the volunteering and so much of the, the other things. And, um, it's, uh, it's wild to me. It's absolutely wild to me that this is the demographic that she's decided that she's going to mess with because if they remember stuff and there will be an election in three years and change. And if she screws up this pension thing, like the smartest thing that she could do right now is go like, okay, everybody, we've done our two town halls and it's been pretty clear that nobody wants this. So never mind, It's cool. I don't think she's going to do that. Um, but yeah, at some point she needs to back down from it, from her, from her, her viewpoint politically. She needs to. So how she does that will be interesting because the facts aren't there. They're just not. They're exact opposite of what she's saying. I mean, at the end of the day, I also go back to um, this is the same Danielle Smith who, on the advice of Rob Anderson, crossed the floor. And that didn't go super great. And Rob Anderson is one of the biggest advocates for an Alberta pension plan. So I think she's just like, OK, Rob. And that's how she makes her decisions. <laughs> Which is mystifying to me, but that's where we are, it seems. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for thanks for tapping in there. Appreciate that, man. Uh, we got Lynn, and then we're gonna wrap it up because we're coming back up to the the two and a half hour mark, and uh, that's just way too much to ask of people to listen to. I feel like like hey, every Sunday, Lord hey, of the Rings, but politics. Hey, Lynn, how's it going? Hey. 
Am I on? You are. First of all, I hate Rob Anderson. <laughs> Second of all, um, I'm fortunate enough not to rely 100% on CPP, but I deserve what I put into it and my husband. Absolutely. Um, we did not overpay. Nope. We paid what we were told to pay. If we overpaid, we got it back. Yep. Their job, right? Um, second of all, Danielle Smith is living in a dream world. Because let me tell you what's happening in Fort McMurray right now. Two of my neighbors who are 55, 56, and 53 have been let go from Suncor. When I moved in here in 1987, there were 25 houses, seven of which were occupied because of the Suncor strike. If you don't think what's happening right now is going to happen what happened back then, you are, she is friggin' insane because it's happening here. And I'm sorry, I'm really emotional right now because we have so many young people who no longer have pensions. And she is living in the world of oil will save us. It's not saving us. No. And and I, my entire married life have is revolved around the, the oil sands. It's given us amazing life. But this is not what's happening right now. Like, people need to understand. Solar panels on my roof? Please. It's not going to kill us. I don't even know what I want to say right now because I'm so emotional. But I'm just saying, people, what's happening in Alberta is not good for us. Whether it's CPP, whether it's what what she's doing, what's stopping, you know, other industries, it's just not right. It's just not right. I'm sorry, I'm going to cut off tonight because I'm really emotional. No, that's totally fair. And I agree with every single word you said there, Lynn. Um the the reality is, and, and this is what I was talking about with the, the peak oil stuff, is that if Alberta is super lucky, we will continue to get royalties that will go into the government purse. But when it comes to the the jobs that are available and the types of jobs that are available to Albertans through the through the oil patch, the the impact of automation and the impact of not there just simply won't be any major projects anymore. Uh, that those are realities that the province has to contend with, and this is one of the reasons why the the politicization and the polarization that Danielle Smith brings to every single issue is is just such a mystery to me. Because if for any leader who's not acting in the best interests of the people that they're supposed to be leading and is instead pursuing craven 
political philosophies is it's just mind-numbing to me. Like, again, I say it, I said it before, and I'll say it again. We're spending $15 million over the next, I mean, five months now uh, on advertising campaigns that are based on false premises. And when you think about the amount of retraining that could be done for $15 million, you think about how many people could be retrained for that money. You think about, I mean, hell, let's, let's go to the Tylenol. You think about how many... Jobs could be created. How many people could be retrained with $70 million? I mean, we're talking, by the time that we get through all of the numbers, we're getting upwards of $100 million that Danielle Smith has flushed to no discernible purpose. And when people are dealing with the kind of hardships that people are dealing with, like we've got Cassandra still trying to deal with her housing situation. We've got people who are losing jobs left, right, and center. We've got people who are dealing with food instability, like, and, and we're flushing a hundred million dollars. That's our response to this. It's just, it's absolutely stunning to me that, that anyone in good conscience can even, I don't even know how you get to the decision, let alone try to justify it. Like, it's just the, if, if we are to believe, this will be my last rant, then I'm going to shut it down because this is way too long. But if we are to believe Daniel Smith's number that there are 42 billion, with a B, dollars in projects that are related to renewable energy, whether we're talking about wind or we're talking about solar or we're talking about, I don't care what, 42 billion dollars an investment that is waiting for approval that isn't moving as quickly as it possibly could because Daniel Smith has decided she's going to do this ideological moratorium on approvals for these projects. How many jobs does that create? And when you combine the hundred million that we're wasting on bullshit drugs and bullshit advertising with 42 billion in investment that's waiting to come into the province of Alberta, it's not, none of this, so much of this suffering that people are dealing with, so much of this insecurity that people are dealing with is completely unnecessary. But we're not, we're not doing those things because Danny wants natural gas and Danny wants to own the feds with $100 million worth of knockoff Turkish Tylenol from Dr. Oz's mom's company. That's where we are. But! We're going to have some fun over the next couple of weeks. Let me tell you, because we need it. So we had some fun tonight. We're going to try to have a little bit more fun as we as we go through the next, uh, next couple of weeks as we're heading into the, the silly season. We're going to do our very, very best to, uh, to get our, our, our maximum silly on. Um, and we got a couple of treats that are coming down the road. So uh, stay tuned for those. But in the meantime and in between time, uh, this is where I do the obligatory plug of the things. So I'm going to start off with the, the first product that I think everybody should be, uh, if you're going to buy some breakdown swag, buy this first. Because it's getting cold outside. It is winter. And this will help keep your, your head warm. It's the limited edition cuffed beanie. And we've, we've teamed up with the folks at abpoly.ca for all of the, the merch stuff. If you buy one of the, the beanies, all of the proceeds go to help 
support Cassandra through the 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 life changes that she's currently navigating. So um, it's I mean it's twenty five bucks, uh, but it's it's super super worth it, and you get to know that you're you're helping at least one Albertan. We know that we can't help every Albertan on the show because we're a silly little podcast that uses puppets. Wink wink nudge nudge, and um, so. This is this is this is our particular line in the sand. You can find that uh, fine piece of fashion at abpoly.ca as long as, as well as our regular merchandise. We've got the hoodies. We've got the coffee cups. I love the coffee cups. And uh, that's my my morning coffee coffee cup. If we did the shows in the mornings, then I would not be anywhere near as cogent as I generally am. But I, you would see me with one of those cups. And then we also have the the different T-shirts that we've got. We've got uh, the ones with the logo. We've also got the – and this was by by suggestion of our wonderful audience. Uh, we've got the there's a lot to unpack here. And then we've got the tagline that I use at the end of every show, keep the conversation going. You can get all of those at abpoly.ca. And we've heard good reviews from the the folks that have already purchased some of this this stuff. So, you know, you can do that. And you can always sign up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for a paltry sum, $5 a month even, uh, you can sign up. You get early access to all of our interview episodes. Um, you're getting early access to some of the things that we're working on. And we're gonna we're heading into the holiday season, so we're gonna try to figure out what we're gonna do as a thank you to everybody who has supported us on Patreon. Um, but we also pre- I appreciate and understand not everybody can afford that right now. So if you can't afford to be one of our Patreon sponsors, that's cool. Just like, subscribe, and share. Smash that subscribe button, as the kids say. And um, I think that's it for tonight. I want to say a big thank you to everybody who, if you're listening to the podcast version, thanks for making it this far. This was a long one. Um, if you're listening live on the X spaces, thanks for making it this far. This was a long one. And if you're uh, one of the amazing people on our chat, you know, I love the fact that our, our YouTube, um, our YouTube chat the little community. I know I talk about this like every show, but I love the little community that's developed in our YouTube chat. It just, I think it's so fantastic. And uh, most of the horrible comments on Facebook have gone away. So that's also super fantastic. Um, so there we go. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody who weighed in tonight, who shared some thoughts, uh, especially we got the, I think we had at least one new person who tagged in. So that's super cool too. We will be dropping a new episode on Wednesday tomorrow for our Patreon supporters. It is a conversation with the incomparable David Gray, and uh, it's a it's it's a, it's a fascinating one. He wears a suit for this one because he's got a new thing he's launching to try to cut through some of the 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 bullshit that exists out there on the political landscape. And uh, we're going to talk all about that. It's going to be Wednesday at eight o'clock, and then we will be back here next Sunday at 8 o'clock for another one of our live shows. Thank you again, everybody. And uh, I promise you, you're not going to want to miss... I mean, the conversation with David Gray is awesome, so you don't want to miss that one. But you also don't want to miss next Sunday's show because we're going to have us some fun. A little bit of fun. Until then, keep the conversation going. Thank mm-hmm. you.